Greetings, ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from Outer, from outer space. space. In this weekly episode, we'll be doing TFOS 926 to 938. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 926. Story number one. We didn't need slaves. Written by Dan and Angel. We didn't need slaves. We spouted off some things about needing to keep the other sentient species down, so that they couldn't threaten us. Maybe a few of the most gullible believed it. Slaves cost more in care and security than basic AI, but that was the point. They were a status symbol as a society, and with the wealthier individuals, we could afford to waste resources on slaves. Anyone could get an AI assistant, but only the elite could use real creatures. When we found the humans, we already had four other species under our control. One of them we'd almost destroyed when they refused to surrender. We thought we knew what we were doing. How could a primitive race oppose us? After all, we were the masters. Our usual strategy worked wonders. Our fleet circles the planet, destroyed their satellites and space stations, then created half the moon with near-light-speed metal projectiles. An hour later, we told them that they could surrender, pay a yearly tithe in slaves, and live under our strict restrictions, or die. They deliberated amongst themselves for one of their days and made a request. They would provide us with slaves, but they would not be killed or maimed out of hand or be put to work in hard labor. If we agreed, they would give us the useful people, intelligent and obedient ones, who could do clerical work and help in the home or office. In the past, two of our slave species had tried to give us their weak, unintelligent and violent. We had to waste time dealing with the useless slaves and then show the species the error of their ways. If we could get useful slaves without force, we'd happily accept. Also, there was little point in killing a slave needlessly. How could you show them off if they were dead? <laughs> so we laughed amongst ourselves and made it seem like we were doing them a great honor. They also asked if they could have their people become soldiers. We refused. We weren't stupid enough to give them weapons. One human year later, we received our first shipment of 15 million slaves. The humans hadn't lied. They'd given us many smart and obedient slaves. We taught them our language and made sure they knew what would happen if they disobeyed. Then we sold them to businesses and families. The personal assistants were particularly favored once we learned how useful they could be. But really, all of them were sold for a top price. The butlers... Nannies and maids were all already well-trained. We barely needed to do anything beyond teaching them how to run the appliances and basic biology. The secretaries, janitors, drivers, and the rest all worked harder than our paid workers. It was like they were born to serve us. When the next tithe of 15 million arrived, there were fights as people rushed to buy them. We demanded 25 million the next year, and the humans meekly agreed. Within ten years, anyone who was important had a human personal assistant. Businesses were teaching human technicians how to work with our AI. Every important family had a human servant, 
a few businesses were letting humans help negotiate contracts after we learned about their lawyers. And soon after, we learned why they were so happy to help. We had watched them carefully for the first five years, but then we grew lazy. What was the point of having slaves if you spent all your time watching everything that they did? As long as they did their job, everything would be fine, and any large mistake or problem would be found quickly enough. At least, that's what we thought. On the 15th anniversary of receiving our first human slaves, chaos struck. First, there was financial. Credits, resources, and entire companies were moved around seemingly at random. Entire planets were sold for a handful of credits, and a used ground transport was bought for billions of credits. Companies sold themselves off to the thousand different buyers, who broke them up into even smaller pieces and sold them again. Everything was done with complete authority of the owners. And during all of this, many key members of the banks and financial world vanished. We faced an economic collapse. The government almost doubted that. They were on the verge of shutting everything down and damned the consequences when the power went out. All across our planets and space habitat systems shut down. Power was lost, AI refused orders, waste disposal stopped, and navigation systems failed. With panic and confusion already high, this pushed people over the edge. There were riots, suicides, assaults, and murder. Many of our slaves joined in the chaos and began to attack us with a vengeance and a hatred that we hadn't thought possible. Despite all of that, we could still recover. But then, the humans showed their hand. The nannies and caretakers took the children and the elderly and vanished with them. These were the families of the elite. They didn't care what happened to the lower classes. They wanted their children and parents back. And while this was happening, the assassins struck. Government officials, scientists, army officers, social elites, the business people, bankers and financial experts who hadn't disappeared were slaughtered by explosion, by car crash, by poison, by knife, by hand. Many humans had nothing to do with the killings. They were busy causing a bloodless chaos or in hiding. Still, out of the hundreds of millions of humans in our cities and homes, there were several million who were more than willing to get their hands dirty. We were headless. The leaders who were still alive were terrified of what would happen to their children, and paranoid that they were going to be stabbed in the back. There was a rapidly expanding slave revolt. Our cities were on fire, with fighting in the streets. The humans had largely slipped away to the pre-planned strongholds with complete access to our AIs, which even we didn't have at that point. Our soldiers were being sent contradictory orders, sending them in circles, Bombing rebel strongholds, only to find out they had destroyed vital infrastructure or secure areas for officials, and wasting as many resources as possible. We thought that it couldn't get any worse. We were wrong. Humans took control of most of our habitats and several transport ships. Our communications cleared up long enough to hear their demands. We would surrender or the space habitats would lose their air and the transport ships would ram our planets at FTL speed. If we surrendered, we'd be granted mercy. We surrendered. 
Our military abandoned their warships and weapons, which the humans quickly took over. After they had our weapons, they kept their word and showed us mercy. The viruses that had destroyed our AI were disabled. They stopped using the tools of our leads to tear our system apart. They stopped getting our few remaining leaders. And then they returned our children and elders, who had been kept safely out of the way. Now we were but a shadow of what we were. Planet Pound was only a fraction of our former merchant ships. We were trying to repair the damage the humans did to our society during the days of chaos. But much of our resources are gone. They were sent to the slave species as compensation. We could only watch as the humans fly our ships between the stars, keeping the peace, keeping our former slaves from slaughtering us. We didn't need slaves. We took them anyways. Ultimately, it destroyed us. End of story. Story number two. The contract written by Can You Change Usernames? So, uh, all of that is a suit, asked the interviewer, concluding the meeting. It's a Mark 17 resistance suit, replied Sam. And it simulates gravity on your planet. Not quite, Sam chuckled. Human physiology is highly adaptive. Our bodies will try and regulate muscle mass to the environment that we're in. In low gravity and in zero-g environments, our muscle mass will atrophy to help conserve metabolic resources. These suits are made from elastic materials that help us maintain mass during extended time on other than Terran environments. They also help us avoid embarrassing moments of overexertion. Embarrassing? How? asked the Xeno interviewer. Sam smiled, remembering his first time in low gravity without the Mark 17. Then he regretted it immediately. The smile had bared his teeth in what galactic communities considered a threat of immediate violence. Since the interviewer was behind three-inch thick plane of transparent metal, it only flinched away. Had there been no barrier, the interviewing being probably would have fled in terror. Sam yawned, careful not to show his teeth, a gesture he had been taught that the species used both as an apology and as a demonstration of non-hostility. Please forgive me, Sam said, looking away from the being that resembled an armadillo crossed with a cow. That is a smile, and humans use them to express humor or joy. This is a fond memory for me, and I meant no threat. We have no quarrel, said the interviewer. I was informed that might happen. It was rude of me to recoil. Being this close to a predatory species that had survived the Great Falter was nerve-wracking for the being, and musky sweat had already begun to beat on his nose. The interviewer hoped that the human hadn't noticed as he fought a nervous tick to lick the sweat away from Hammett. As I was saying, uh, I remember being in a low-gravity environment like yours when I first hit the fleet. I had removed my suit to shower and conduct hygiene practices. As I stood up from my chair without magnetic boots and the suit, I launched myself into the ceiling of my hab room. <laughs> the repairs in the hab were expensive, and my head hurt for a day after. And this was amusing to you? The interviewer asked, astonished. Sam did not say what else was amusing to him. That the suit had an override function to stop resistance, and that it doubled as a protective armor. 
that the thin layer of gel insulation would rigidize under ballistic force, dissipate most hand-portable heat and ray projections, and mask heat and IR signatures to ambient temperatures. That information was protected at all costs. The Mark 17 battlesuit's function as a preliminary protection for atrophy was a secondary feature that was all any Xeno needed to know at this point. The humans and their background made most Xenos uncomfortable, to the point that the nickname Death Wilders had stuck. It was intended as an insult, but most of humanity had adopted the name as a mark of pride to the point that many mercenary groups had named themselves for it. Of course, the official military and government groups publicly denounced the name and the groups that used it. The contracting association that had sent Sam and his team to this outpost were hoping that this interview would result in a hefty security contract for the outpost and many like it. It was funny later, Sam lamented. Kind of a rite of passage that happens to anyone that works in my field long enough. It's an amusing mistake that most people only make once. The interviewer shook his massive head in disbelief. Standing up, the interviewer would be nearly twice as tall as the human. But if the reports were true, the small mammal in front of him had the raw strength to throw him many standard units or simply pull him apart. This was unnerving. There was no question that the company the interviewer worked for would benefit from accepting the human's bid for the outpost security contract but it would certainly be difficult adjustment for the on-site workers. I think that's all the data we need to move forward, said the interviewer, slowly standing and yawning. Our officers will send over the agreement forms and terms by the end of the solar cycle. We look forward to having you and your team on board. Sam smiled in an intentionally toothy grin as he rose, reinforcing as many stereotypes as he could at once. This was as much a personal pride as it was for marketing for him. The rates his men would get for a one-year contract would ensure neither him nor his children would have to work ever again. You'll be happy you made this decision. The metal barrier went opaque almost before the interviewer turned and ran from the room across from Sam. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 927 it didn't have a bayonet, written by Ender's Game 69. That was what the alien from Earth said when I showed off one of our weapons to intimidate him. Now that I have your attention, please read the report in full. On the 17th day of the ninth cycle of the year, I was assigned to make first contact with a newly unified space-bearing world known by its inhabitants as Planet Dirt. For the unfamiliar, it was first discovered when backtracking one of their old extrasolar probes and set under observation in a year most of their nations referred to as 2021. Over the next hundred years, we watched it technologically stagnate in terms of its space-sparing potential. But strangely enough, they began a steady process of unification. If only we knew, but we didn't know. They weren't the only ones being observed. We'd been spotted. One of the few things to leave Earth for years had been these small, microchip-sized probes. With fairly good solar panels and very low density, they were shot towards the stars in such a way that the gravity of the stars would slingshot them at the speed of light in multiple directions. 
we assumed that we were undetected. After all, we weren't on the same light spectrum as they were looking for. But here was where I later learned their genius showed itself. They sought energy signatures. They found us, but we didn't know it. We were watching them, and we still didn't know it. Let that sink in. The dominant species on this world at first seems fragile. They are not taller than almost any race that we knew, nor are they equipped with natural weapons like poison or fangs. But their muscles could pull what they call 17 tons if all the muscles in a single body could pull in one direction. They also are shockingly hard to kill. They have been seen to fight until they bleed to death. Put simply, they kill until they run out of murder fuel, if provoked. And they were unifying. And it was because of us. We believed they'd been stagnant in a dangerous tank, with our observations showing only that they were curing disease and advancing energy production and construction. That was our folly. We never thought about what lay within planet dirt, or beneath the sea, or what we ourselves had taught them. Their probes robbed us blind and sent data, and with it, ideas back to them. They made tools to watch us directly, and they learned from our military drills and mock battles. Finally, at last, we chose to initiate contact. Per the usual rule, it was warp capability that drove us. We didn't know that they'd had it for years. I brought my ship into orbit and revealed it. Or so I thought, but I had already been revealed. They answered my transmission with what passed for courtesy in their customs, and after a few pleasantries, I began to boast about my ship and my people. Sadly, reading this race was difficult, and I thought I saw fear. I was wronger. They were abused. I offered a weapon demonstration. They agreed. A big side of meat was procured, and I drew my plasma gun, fired, and watched it disintegrate. This was my first indication that something was wrong. I've been first contact with 27 worlds. Fear and panic were obvious every time. People would run or hide or start making offers of submission. These primates did not. Rather, one of the war apes, soldiers, they called them, sauntered over while the others continued to drink poison and asked why I had such a stupid, ineffectual weapon. Before I explain, you must be wondering about poison. To put it in short, this war primate species poisons itself for pleasure by drinking fermented liquid and inhaling toxic smoke. The less said of either, the better. But back to the war primate. I was confused and pointed to the half-disintegrated cider cow. He looked over my scales and pointed to my weapon, and said first, It doesn't have a bayonet, so how can you gut someone? He then produced a small, gas-powered sidearm and fired it into the cow. Now I am fond of arms and have never thought much of primitive projectiles, but he brought me to the remainder of the flesh of the beast. The hole going in was small. But then he showed me the rest. He said, An instantly lethal weapon sounds good, but the wounded are demoralizing and require care. And if you want to kill quickly, bullets do horrendous damage. 
He goes in small, then spirals around, tearing up organs and leaving a howling, agonizing and dying body. Plus there's room for a knife on the long guns. I knew then that I was in trouble, and it was redoubled as I was invited to the launch. I asked what they meant. We'd seen no space activity for years, and their ambassador explained... We've watched you too, and built a fleet beneath the surface of the Earth. Now we're ready to go say hello back. It was absurd on the face, but I accepted his invitation, and we went in one of their hydrogen-powered cars over to the launch site. Your ships taught us a lot. I should thank you for that. You were my son's favorite video game. That was what he told me, but I needed an explanation, which he obliged to give me. Our military drills had been turned into competitions here, where simulated AIs of us would be fought against. Our ships can beat yours easily now, so the new games aren't as popular. But the originals are classics. He said that with a casual air that made my entire body tense and stayed that way until we got to the place of flat ground with one high platform built. The other war apes and I ascended the metal stairs in silence, and I watched the ground open up before me. I'll spare this report on the speeches, because the important thing is that the ships were real. Long, sleek things. They were a swarm, and I had to ask, What will carry all of those? He pointed to a distant white screen, and I heard a roar of a parting ocean. The sea torn asunder by a huge white metal ship rising up. The source of the warp signature. That was it. Nor was it alone. My communicator went off. My crew was panicking. Each ship was three or four times larger than our own, and energy readings were off the charts. I looked at the war ape, and he told me to answer it. I calmed my crew, told them not to worry. Everything would be fine. I was fairly sure I was lying. No species lies this long before revealing their hand unless it's the end of the game. A long game that is now done. Welcome to Earth, he said, his lips turning up at the corners, a gesture I couldn't match. But I could say thank you. I did, without thinking. Then I asked, where are those going? He answered very calmly, to your home world, of course. You were kind enough to visit us. Now we're going to return the kindness to you. On screen, the view of the rising ships was fading out, and I was watching a game in which our simulated ships fought those of their war apes. Then it seemed realistic, and we did not farewell. So, uh, to my counsel, I say this. I've seen devious races, clever races, war races, predator, and prey races. But I've never seen one that was all of these. For over a hundred years, they conned us and prepared for a single hour under our noses. We imagined that we were unbeatable. We imagined that we were fierce. But that's all it was. Imagination. They let me go to deliver my report, and now I race back home with only a short head start. There is no time to prepare a military response, and I can't imagine one would bring about any more than our own destruction. 
War apes who think guns need knives and who will add fake limbs to ruined bodies to keep getting are coming. We must make sure they come in peace or are all dead. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 928. They're stoned apes, written by Black Lung Bastard. When hauling cargo halfway across the galaxy, you get a lot of downtime to rest, relax, and get to know your crew, which usually means swapping stories or learning about other species you're spending months with. My bunkmate is a human, and being the newest species to join the galaxy, we always had a lot to talk about. We both worked in the med bay, and I remember when we first met. He went on about how I looked like a dragons of myth and fantasy. That alone gave us a week's worth of content to talk about. Our conversations, topics varied, from our species' discovery of faster-than-light travel to local cuisine. I consider Mike a friend, and as friends, our conversations got more personal and started to move towards topics less savory. Okay, so we started talking about drugs. It was an enlightening conversation, and there were quite a few similarities between humans and the Wybera. Our species both have long history of smoking the buds of a plant that produced euphoria amongst its imbibers. I told Mike that my coming-of-age party and how I was offered moon grass. After that, I took a liking to it and only stopped when I began my mandatory military service. Oh yeah, can't be smoking grass when the brass is lurking about, Mike said. I laughed and said, doesn't stop from trying. I had heard stories of those stressed by military boot camp and sneaking off the barracks to laugh at the moon. Oh jeez, that reminds me of a buddy, he said with a laugh. He got a hold of some mushrooms while deployed and had to hide the fact that he was high as a kite when he got a surprise inspection. That's what started all of this. I thought I must hurt and had to ask. Mushrooms? Yeah, magic mushrooms. It's a psychedelic. I used them a couple times in college. They're wild time, man. I had never heard of any substance that produced the described effect. Even the concept of psychedelics was foreign to me. I had admitted as much to Mike. Of course, we had stimulants, depressants, and euphorics. But hallucinations were considered a sign of brain damage. I can't be right. Humanity can't be the only ones tripping here. I shook my head. Mike grabbed his datapad and started making searches, looking through a public database describing substances the Galactic Federation classified as medicinal, prohibited, or outlawed, and got nothing close. Okay, so that's weird. So there's like 50 different species that get high off similar plants and rocks, and not one of them is going on a journey, he asked. There's like 200 different kinds of psilocybin mushrooms, peyote, mescaline, I mean, feck, it's not even hard to make LSD. It's then that Mike got a look and started to smile. Tranta, my man, we might be sitting on a gold mine, he said. That got my attention. We might be able to write a paper on this. If psychedelics are really that unknown amongst the galaxy, we could be some of the first doctors to discuss it in depth. He said with a smile I knew meant trouble. But I couldn't back out now. I was more curious than anything. I leaned in and he took that as a sign to continue. Well, we'll be docking with Verth in less than a week. I know a guy there. 
He gets us a whole smorgasbord of psychedelics. We do some research and write a paper on our findings. What do you think? Against my better judgment, I agreed. But, uh, knowing what I know now, I wish I let it lie. True to Mike's word, he knew a guy that could deliver what he needed. So he left the ship shortly after we docked and returned with the case and wheeled it onto the ship without a problem. He explained that humanity had legalized recreational drugs. So long as they didn't leave his possession, we were in no danger. Nor so I thought. The danger turned out to be not from possessing such substances, but from handling them. We were off shift and Mike excitedly started opening the case, revealing a number of powders, sheets of paper, and several kinds of dried mushroom. Not knowing what I was getting into, I approached this scientifically. First, I grabbed a bag of dried mushrooms that sparked this whole endeavor and examined them. They looked innocuous enough, so I pulled out my medipad and scanned them, and ran a simulation on how my body would react if ingested. Mike noticed when I went quiet, and upon seeing the look of horror on my face, he ran over and stared at the readings over my shoulder. He flinched when he read psychosis and brain hemorrhaging, amongst other major results. Okay, that's, um, unfortunate, he said sheepishly. I didn't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't this. All right, um, well, we still need a non-human if we're going to do this right. What about Joni? How'd she fare? I nodded numbly, my mind still reading at the information. I reran the simulation, this time for a Tirani. An insect race was famed for its constitution and ability to consume just about anything. Psychosis and brain hemorrhaging, I half whispered. That didn't seem right. The brain chemistry was completely different for the Tirani and Wyvera. I had a feeling and punched in another race before Mike could suggest it. It's Sundan. A hearty race born of a high gravity world with a backup for each organ system and near immunity to toxins. Just to operate on one, you would need gallons of anesthetic. But I already knew what the results would be before they flashed on screen. Psychosis and brain hemorrhaging. This went on for 20 different species, one of which was the lithoid, and it all ended the same way. What was even stranger was that it took the same amount to kill, no matter the species, between 2 and 3 grams. I tried this with each and every other substance Mike had procured, and while some had additional side effects, it was all medical impossibility. Each race would see themselves going to a fit of psychosis and suffer a lethal brain hemorrhage if anything the human had was imbibed. Mike fell on his haunches, the wind taken out of his sails, as it were. This, uh, changes this, he said grimly. I'm less inclined to publish something before hitting the next port. But now I feel we've got to figure out what's going on. We stumbled onto something big. I felt numb, more than anything. This was medically impossible, and here we were, way out of our depth. I was brought out of my introspection by the sound of rustling and found Mike getting into the mushrooms. What are you doing? About four grams, he said flatly. I'm going on a trip, and you're going to monitor my vitals and brain activity. We'll compare notes when I'm lucid again. I watched in horror as he pulled out a handful of dried mushrooms and popped them into his mouth, only remembering that he was fine when he grimaced and gagged before swallowing. 
I hate the taste. I have no clue why my ancestors even thought of eating these. Your ancestors? Yeah, my ape ancestors. There's evidence to suggest that early humanity has eaten these things for millennia, he said. There's even a theory that says that these things were the catalyst for evolution. I tried to get more information out of Mike, but it was quite fragmented as time goes on. But as it stands, there's a fringe theory amongst humans. Early humanity experienced a tripling in brain size over the course of three million years, an unheard of expansion in the greater galactic stage. The stoned ape theory posits that the consumption of these mushrooms changed their ancestors physiologically, neurochemically, and culturally, and was responsible for creating human imagination, art, language, philosophy, science, and religion. Mike became less lucid as time went on, and I had to keep reminding myself that he wouldn't die. I was relieved when he entered what had been dubbed the giggly phase. He laughed at the driest of jokes and would often break into laughing with no real reason. What's so funny? I asked, following his line of sight to a nearby wall. Swirling, he half mumbled before looking into my eyes. He looked at me with eyes dilated almost completely and went slack-jaw. Wow, so colorful. I scooted back as he reached out a hand to grab one of my wings. Mike was never what I'd call handsy, and his newfound fascination with me made me nervous. Are you all right? He blinked and wavered where he sat. I think I gotta lay down. I watched as Mike rose to unsteady feet, his balance that of a drunkard before he collapsed on his bed. As he laid down, he groaned and started rocking back and forth. I got to my feet and walked over to Mike's bed. He said he'd get loopy and would most likely curl up in bed. He laughed again and rolled over onto his back, looking at me with a smile that was... unnatural. Mike! He laughed, low and slow, dragging his hands over his face. <laughs> the space between stars is completely empty, he said. What? It's not all empty. The light goes on. <laughs> but stops. But, but it's true. But it, it's not all there. There's nothing and everything. Mike, what are you? The Tower of Babel wasn't ours. Mike warned me that he'd babble nonsense. But what he said still unnerved me. And I had no idea why. I'm, I'm going to the med bay, Mike. I'm going to run some tests, I said. I'll leave the medipad recording, just don't leave the room. In a moment of lucidity, Mike reached up and grabbed a hold of my arm. I'm fine, Trant. Just go do whatever you gotta do. And as soon as it came, it was gone as his eyes rolled back into his head and he collapsed into the bed. Frankly, this whole thing scared me. But what really got me and made me question everything was what I found in the med bay. As a civilian cargo hauler, we don't have much in the way of tools in our med bay, but we do have a gene sequencer. It's a handy tool if you need to identify a body from a few scraps after an accident. I had some of the mushrooms, and I wanted to see just what the gene sequence told me. Those mushrooms, those magic mushrooms that humanity had been supposedly consuming for millions of years, they're not natural. Their gene sequence bears all the hallmarks of editing, sequencing, and resequencing. 
There's no way something like that develop naturally. Which means they're not native to Earth. Someone or something put them there. I have no idea what that means. But I think back to what Mike says about the fringe theory. About how human brains triple in size in a short amount of time. I don't like the implications. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 929 Humans are scary. Written by Ace Sero. Most of the galaxy's species are hardier, stronger, faster, even tougher. But if you ask any warrior of the Hathroxy or the Anami Warbringers which species they would least like to meet on the battlefield, almost every single one will answer, human. Humans aren't particularly stronger. A Metosian worker drone can easily do anything a human can, so long as the task requires some strength. They aren't particularly fast. A Kildari can walk faster than a human can jog. They aren't particularly tough. They aren't covered with a hardened exterior like you might find on the dog, or other species who are neither strong nor fast. No, what makes humans scary are two assets unique to them. Their regenerative abilities, and what humans call imagination. On their own, such abilities are rare amongst the various species of the galaxy. A Hathroxy warrior is easily capable of lifting a stone many times its own size, whereas the strongest of humans have to vigilantly work to maintain its strength to even approach that level. But a Hathroxy who tears too many muscle fibers in its appendages loses the limb and has to undergo life-threatening surgery to regrow it afterwards. Humans tear their muscle fibers all the time, and in all but the most extreme circumstances, all they need is a full planet cycle's rest in order to recover from it. What's more, the strain induced from such an act would only form more muscle fibers to not only replace the lost and torn fibers, but coax the human body to create more. This results in human strength growing, and is probably the source of the old human adage, what doesn't kill you, makes you stronger. If one were to attack both a human and a dog with a claw or melee weapon, they would find that while the human external layer is easy to penetrate compared to the armored shell of a dog, a human's body will only need to recover for a few cycles, provided no major organs were struck. Whereas a dog's muscles may need several dozen lunars in order to fully recover, provided the dog in question is still young in the formative phase. This unheard of regeneration rate, again unique to humans, is formidable on its own. But what makes humans scary is how they realize their regenerative properties give them an edge in survival situation, and have combined it with their previously mentioned imagination. Now, what is this concept, you might be wondering? Imagination refers to humans' innate ability to grasp abstract concepts, or come up with ideas the same way researchers and scientists do in other species. What makes humans unique is that there isn't a simple caste or other group of individuals in their species that share this trait. All humans have imagination, from the youngest human broodling to the honored elders of their kind. Each of them can grasp new ideas in ways other species would have difficulty even comprehending. What makes humans scary is that their imaginations, coupled with their advanced regeneration abilities, 
Alas, with the birth of an entirely new concept, cybernetic augmentation. For most species, the idea of implanting a tiny supercomputer in your mind in order for it to run parallel processes is suicidal. But humans, with their regenerative properties, can not only survive such surgeries as to make an insane idea viable, they can do it with such a rate that nearly every human has in some way, shape or form become cybernetically augmented. Some humans cannot naturally run as fast as the Kaldari, so they implant specialized cybernetics in their legs to help them keep pace. Some humans cannot match the Hathroxy in strength, so they lop off their arms and replace those with cybernetics much more powerful than human muscles, and ones that can be easily repaired if damaged. Even when augmented in this way on the minimalistic level, humans are scary. Perhaps more scary than their fully augmented brethren. One human in particular, a bounty hunter by the name of Robin, gave himself a single piece of cybernetics, then implant directly into the base of his skull. On its own, it only allows him to think faster and interface with computer systems without the need to be physically at a terminal but it also allowed him to develop a terrifying weapon, one he used to perform his task with a deadly efficiency. I had the privilege of seeing this bounty hunter in action once. It was at a small refueling station on the edge of the Vega system. A violent Tildari criminal was running from the Galactic Concord's authority. The Concord had put out a bounty on the wanted murderer Ziska'al, and it was Robin who made the capture. Ziska'al was stopped at the station to get fuel for his ship. Everyone immediately recognized him. But being that the Tildari were death world predators by nature, no one wanted to interfere with him, myself included. Then a small human vessel stopped to refuel. The human must have recognized Ziska'al's vessel because he had docked in the opposite side of the same hangar. When the human stepped out, no one wanted to get in his way. Everyone recognized the armor of a human warrior, having seen the new speeds in the First and Second Terran System War. Robin had five long metallic blades attached to his backpack. Personal scans showed them to be melee weapons. I think I was the only one willing to scan him when I saw him disembark in the hangar, though if he detected my scan, he gave no sign of it. I'd been on my way to run a diagnostic on my ship in preparation for takeoff, four fractions later, but I felt that I could put it off for a time. I saw the bounty hunter emblem on Robin's shoulder, and I knew Ziska'al was present on the station, so I was eager to see how things would play out. I think it's prudent at this time to mention that I'm a journalist, though I'm only just now breaking into the field and I couldn't let this chance to see a bounty hunter catch a criminal pass me by, especially since both of the belligerents were death worlders. I engaged my camera drone and followed the human as he made his way into the station. It didn't take long for the bounty hunter to find his quarry. The skull was seated in a small table in the food court, waiting for clearance from the station AI to contact him to tell him that his ship had been fully refueled and decontaminated. The human walked with purpose up to the table, the dark visor on his helmet focused intently on the Taldari in front of him. What makes Taldari threatening 
is a combination of four arms ending in three hands tipped with claws, and a large jaw with two rows of teeth. They are carnivorous predator on their homeworld, and in extreme cases, such as the Ziska owl, they were willing to hunt and eat other sapient creatures. Aside from five melee weapons on Robin's back, I saw no other weaponry on his person. I wondered how a human, with half the number of limbs as his quarry, would even bother with more than two such weapons. Not only that, their size made them unwieldy for a human using only one hand. So why would he have five? The answer came to me as the confrontation swiftly began. I had made the mistake of not properly tuning my translator, so I can only give you a general idea of what was said. Robin had declared his intent to arrest Siskaal and urged him to cooperate so no one got hurt. The Tildari replied with a low growl, kicking the table at the human before jumping into a combat stance, declaring his intent to turn Robin into a meal. I saw Robin back away from Ziskaal before putting his hand to the side of his head, and what I saw both amazed me and confused me. All five melee weapons on Robin's back suddenly flew out of their holdings and began hovering near his body, pointing themselves at Ziskaal. This astounded me, as I knew of only two races that had been confirmed to have some sort of psionic power and neither of those species showed psionics on this level. I would learn later that Robin's implant allowed him to use his own thoughts to direct personal drones. These drones that he kept with him in the form of five long swords, as they're called on his home world. And seeing these five melee weapons floating around this human unsettled the Tatari criminal. Several times, the skull attempted to lunge at Robin, and each time one of the swords swiped at his reptilian aggressor, causing him to back away. Taldari are generally stronger and faster than humans, and with four limbs, they can easily rip apart the primate species like humans in unarmed combat. But humans make up for the difference in personal combat ability through the use of unique tools, as demonstrated by the clash I saw before me. Whenever Ziskaal attempted to get close or run away, Robin responded with one of his swords, keeping the criminal where he was. This tense exchange went on for a good five microfractions before Ziskaal got desperate and made to take a bystander as a hostage. As soon as Robin realized what was happening, one of his swords acted and chopped off Ziskaal's hand. The Tadari roared in pain as he stumbled back and two more swords pinned him to the wall by the neck, before the combination of the missing limb and the reminder that the floating melee weapons were still a threat convinced Ziskaal to surrender. I didn't get a chance to interview Robin, only learn his name from the station authorities as the human returned to his ship with his quarry in tow. Apparently, he had already filled out the necessary forms for taking Ziskaal into custody and transmitted them before his ship had even docked. Usually, such things are done after a prisoner has been confirmed to be in custody. Yet, this human bounty hunter did it before he even set foot on the refuting station, as if he knew how the confrontation would end. Was this done out of arrogance or confidence? Who can say? But with the choice in weaponry, I personally am of the latter camp. After all, who would be imaginative enough 
with a way to deal with flying melee weapons. Only a human would be able to even come up with something like that. And that made me believe one thing for certain. Humans are scary. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 930. Story number one. We Thought Wrong, written by Ender's Game 69. I deliver this recording in what I believe will be the final hour of my life. I can only hope that when this message reaches home, it'll be heard and taken with the utmost seriousness. My name is Galaxin. I am, or was, the commander of the 4th Parisian Band, and I know my world has heard of me. For years, our pirates have raided worlds and trade routes with impunity. I'm sure this part will be censored when, or if it is broadcast successfully to our population. But I want to say it anyway. We acted as agents of the governing council, with their permission both tacit and explicit depending on where we were going and who we were attacking. Sometimes, I admit, we struck at places outside of our concerns of our government. And of course, since it was outside the concerns, who cared? Series of coughs breaking the narrative, screams in the background, incoherent words. Forgive me, the smoke is starting to make its way in. It won't be long now, I'll be quick. We raided Terra because it was easy, and because the race seemed weak. I mean... Whoever heard of a species of intelligence sacrificing mature and productive adults for the young, when they not only can just make more, but enjoy doing so at every opportunity? When they first ventured into interstellar space and made contact with our enemies, it's probable that they had no idea that the invitation to join a trade alliance was an invitation to be invaded. But once they did, hey... Easy pickings, right? No grand military fleet, no massive space stations or networks or defensives. They had only begun to draw up plans to harvest the energy of the stars in mass. Like I said, easy. So we hit the place, a few capitals, blew up a few bases. Ah, we had a grand old pirate time as we always have, and we put ourselves in reach, which was one of our biggest mistakes. We took communities easily enough at first, but then one of our people during the harvest grew annoyed at the sound of crying infant of their species. They have a horrific wail, so he shot it in the arms of what we now know as one of their families. No big deal, just make another, right? We thought wrong. The woman lost all reason and attacked our raiders. She was shot sixteen times but she beat one of us to death with his own weapon. That was when we found the other thing out. Humans tell stories. A lot. This story, well, they recorded it. Eventually, they recorded a lot, and the sight of one of our officers getting one of their infants in its mother's arms, and then her beating him to death with his own weapon before she was finally killed too sparked an outbreak of violence that cost me four companies in a day. Then one of my idiot officers decided that since they love children so much, we would threaten to kill more of them if they didn't stand down. Big mistake. 
He showed them that we were kitty-killing monsters, and when humans decided that something is dangerous to the young, they will stop at nothing to destroy it. Gunfire noises, screams cut short, the sound of humans shouting beyond the door. You have to understand, it isn't just my band. They decided our entire race is a threat to their young. The last interceptions we made of their communication showed that the Kellen Confederation was going to trade them weapons and technology to join the war in earnest. We picked up home communications. The whole planet has gone mad with hatred for us. Steal their goods. Nobody cares. Kill an adult. They get upset. But kill their young and they lose all reason or care for their own lives. If they have any sense of self-preservation left when it comes to wiping us out, I can't find it. I tried negotiating, I tried trading, I tried warning and threatening them, and all that meant was that their convictions were hardened. Whatever you do, do not target their young. You'll do us all. We thought that would make things easy, and we thought wrong. Shouting of human voices intensifies, scrambling of limbs over metal floors and the sound of a button, a single scream of pain, that silence. And that is the last report of the most powerful pirate fleet commander in the last 500 cycles. Since that time, humans have exterminated four military bases and done self-termination runs against entire fleets, crippling operations in 14 quadrants. I am afraid the war is as good as lost. Therefore, I recommend we offer terms to the Kellen Confederation that are favorable to peace, including a mandate that they cease to supply humans with weapons and technology. In addition, in a post-war period, I move that we propose to the Galactic Union that we make it unlawful to employ human mercenaries or to supply weapons to human armies and make it a war crime to target human young in any operation under any circumstances. Perhaps news of that will help them realize that we are not all the same as the late Pirate Lord. Will that work? Many voices asked the question. End of story. We Thought Wrong, Part 2, written by Enders Game 69. How much longer? Everybody asked that question. North America, South America, Eastern Europe, Asia, and the Indian subcontinent. Everywhere there was a story of one of the pirate pair that raided humanity, executing someone's infant for being found. So the question, how much longer, kept coming. The Kalan Confederation ships were tracked on the global net. Their first transmissions of technological data for interstellar travel had already been given to every government on Earth. Every session of the United Government that began to form in the wake of the stories and videos began the same way. The sound of a crying child, a shot from a pirate weapon, and a mother's screams. And only then were the humans debate. It was played in the new shipyards that were already being built. It was played in the United Infantry training grounds that sprung up around the world. It was being played in the mech construction factories and training centers. And every day, new reports about their preparations were sent to the Kellan Confederation government. And that same question, how much longer, 
began to haunt the Confederation itself. Because, with its monitoring of the Terran communications, came more of a cultural exchange of information. Stories, songs, poetry, movies, histories. And it was days before the first transport ships were due to arrive on Earth. Their horror movies are concerning, the chief anthropologist remarked. He stroked his scales in a nervous gesture, shedding some of the dead flecks on the floor. Not the alien invasion movies, politician asked, with a huffing noise that passed for laughter. Those too, but not for the reason you think. The problem is that every alien invasion and every horror movie monster is so over the top it's utterly ridiculous. Monsters that are immortal, or ghosts that can't die, things like that. Nor aliens with such impossible technology that they defy the laws of physics. The chief anthropologist replied. His reptilian tail lashed at his back as his anxiety grew worse. Why is that so concerning? Because that is the only thing in the universe they consider to be a threat. It has to be gods, or angels, or demons, or impossible monsters, or impossible aliens. Anything less than that, they don't consider it to be reasonable to feel afraid of. If it can't break a planet, it isn't a problem they're worried about. You heard what they did to the Admiral of the Pirate Fleet, didn't you? He was basically a lord. They tore off his limbs, eventually. The chief anthropologist shuddered. I'll tell you, sir, I've never seen a species this insanely protective of the young. The father of one of the boys dragged one of the pirates to death behind a two-wheeled motorized contraption and handed over the only shreds of flesh to the ambassador when we asked what happened. They're insane, and they're now convinced that our enemies want to kill their children. The chief anthropologist held out his hands with finger claws upturned. We may just be inviting disaster unless we tread carefully. I understand we need the reinforcements. But this species is the most homicidal, suicidal, bloodthirsty species that I've ever come across. One of their stories has their literal god coming down, pissing some of them off, and they nailed him alive to wood to die. My assistant went there on a visit and... He chewed on his tongue for a moment. And what? the politician asked. He was assigned to study their military culture to see how it distinguishes from the rest of the castes only to find that they have no castes. Anyone can fulfill any role they want. He asked one of the pilots how they'd take down a jamming ship that kept an AI from piloting things, and he just said, blow up the jamming ship. My assistant pointed out that you can't do that because the signal would be jammed, and the pilot said that it didn't matter as long as you just used a living pilot instead. The chief anthropologist shuddered. The politician shrugged. Grossly over-exaggerated, I'm sure. I know some of my colleagues are bothered by this, but as long as they can help us win, I fail to see the problem. The chief anthropologist could only walk away in defeat, leaving a nervous trail of shed skin behind him. Three months later. Not the humans take the casualties, the Kellon Admiral said. They're asking for the first run. It was a request that was happily granted. The Kalon provided starships were piloted by humans, but they were not piloted like the Kalon pilots intended. The Admiral watched with dismay as fighters skipped like smooth stones over the atmosphere of the planet, 
and sent out transmissions audible to both sides, unencrypted. Does anyone else have a translation for Yippee motherfucker? the Admiral asked. Heads shook. In contradiction to doctrine, the longships bounced along the atmosphere, confusing the ground defenses and unleashing withering fire on the planetary defenses. Again, contradicting doctrine, which said that ground troops should only come down after the area was secure. The human piloted ships were coming in fast and ascending at a dangerous speed as soon as they were able to breach the atmosphere of the world. Some sense of foreboding or hope or uncertainty or something he could not truly name compelled him to his next orders. Put the surface on screen, the Admiral barked, and broadcast it back home. The screen came up and showed transports opening up and the human jumpers emerging from the bottom of the transport. Humans are machines, he asked, and his crew shrugged it off. That was when the second broadcast hit, the sound of some wailing, a familiar sound of a weapon going off and a scream of a human woman. This broadcast was unencrypted as the rest and clearly intended to be heard by all, and it seemed to drive the humans mad. Then he saw the flesh pilots, and the humans loved of overkill. The machines the humans piloted were heavy lumbering things with massive arms equipped with guns mounted with projectile weapons the size of a body. Contemporary strategy involved capturing positions, but the humans' heavy infantry had no interest in capturing positions. Each of their mechs had mounted rockets on both shoulders, dozens of small ones that were launched at any building in their path. The Pankin Alliance had soldiers aplenty, but they fought as if they wished to live. The humans fought as if they were there to kill and didn't care if they died in the process. The first transports holding secondary light infantry began to land moments after the mechanized walkers. These used light rocket-powered air sleds that shot over the battlefield. These lightly armored soldiers sprayed chaff everywhere to cripple the laser-based weapons of the surviving defenders the white mist wreaking havoc on their ability to resist. This isn't war. This is revenge. Are they insane? Are they insane? The Admiral asked the question twice, and still got no answer. Whoever controlled the monitor began to zoom in on the close fighting and saw the twisted mask of hatred on the Terran face of a light infantryman. His projectile weapons' sharp gleam at the front suddenly had a clear purpose. They put knives on their guns, the Admiral half-stammered as the Terran infantryman gutted a Pankin Alliance soldier, shouting in rage as if it had been his own young to be killed by the pirates. The Admiral tried to imagine. From what twisted depths of the abyss can hate like that come from? What is he thinking about? Doesn't he know what he's doing? See a machine, he whispered his exclamation. Sir, we have an incoming transmission from the Terran Admiral, the officer said, without tearing his eyes away from the screen, while the screen zoomed out and showed a battle-mad Terran pick up a severed arm and beat an unfortunate to death with it. What is he saying? the Admiral asked. He is saying that we're unnecessary. The Pankin turned out to not be as fierce as they were led to believe. The officer on the comms and translator waited for his Admiral to answer. But as they saw the Terran banner raised over the last standing building, and the human infantry and mechanized forces sent fire to the last Pankin stronghold in the area, 
and shoot down those who were trying to flee. The Admiral could not argue. Tell him, it's fine, we'll take the next world when we leave next month, the Admiral responded. His comms and translator officer relayed that, and then his scales began to shed horribly. They're not waiting, sir, he says, follow with supplies, but the next world is only one jump away and not ready. He didn't use many supplies, so we can follow when we're ready. Weeks later, at the Cologne Confederacy Assembly. Fourteen worlds in fourteen months. The war's progress has completely reversed itself. The Bankern are offering terms of surrender. Some strange ones, some that I can understand. But there is another question we have to ask. Will the humans be willing to make peace? The Assembly heard the question asked by the revered speaker, and they were all silent. The transmissions sent out by the various fleets of the human military operations ranged from the insane to the astonishing. They were rapidly becoming known across the galactic civilizations as the Wipes, and they were beginning to appear in popular media and propaganda regarding the changing fortunes of the war. The one slow and inevitable defeat was rapidly turned into total victory. But Terran rage at the Pankin had not abated and it was growing concerning. Will they fight without allies? Someone asked, and that brought a general round of laughter. Daring solo operations by human officers were as much a routine as sunrises now. They are not a totally irrational species. If we offer to make it a war crime, galaxy-wide, to ever harm their young under any circumstances, and to immediately hand anyone who does over to the Terran government for trial and disposal, they might recognize the value of this and make peace with the Pankin along with the rest of us, the reserve speaker suggested. Will that really be enough for them? was a reasonable question. We think so, the reserve speaker said, and then he moved to take a vote. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 931 Trespassers Written by Allegoric our world. The Zas had declared. The Primarch has spoken, and it is so. No others could be permitted. The Primarch had ordained that the world was theirs. Trespassers would be exterminated. It was the way of things. The upstart satellites, little boxes of sensors, and geosynchronous orbits were destroyed. Scans quickly located their communities. A tiny cluster of habitations close to the Equator. They had set themselves up on the surface, brazingly in the open, each separate site showing a hot spot on the display due to the emissions from the power plants. The biological diversity of the world was its prime asset, the reason they needed it. It were not due to harm it at all. Appropriate ordnance, precision munitions were selected and launched by the fleet. The missiles accelerated down, and the sights were turned into craters and rubble. They scanned. The power sources were gone. The structures flattened. Two full battalions of infantry were dispatched to complete the process, to cleanse the place of any last vestiges of the intruders. Little could have survived the orbital bombardment, but it was necessary to check, just to be sure. They descended in landers that touched down a few Ayamu away from each place. 
The rounded craft disgorged the serried companies of troops that they carried and lifted away again, soaring into the air. The soldiers watched them depart and then set off in cautious lines, their weapons at the ready, scanning the wilderness for dangers. Clear! came back the reports as they advanced. They stopped at a little distance away from the remains of the villages had surveyed them, looking for signs of life, but the strikes seemed to have done their jobs. The braces were shattered, gutted ruins, torn into pieces by the bombardment. They were clad in pungent smoke, and some parts were still burning. No bodies, though. Villages was perhaps generous. Each site was centered in a long, crude hall, a homestead constructed from logs and rocks, with a few large ancillary structures dotted around it, and all the buildings circled by the beast-proof fence. Each site was surrounded by a mosaic of cleared pastures and fields, and out beyond those were primal forests, dark and dangerous and crawling with exotic organisms. Before the strikes hit, they were scattered wreckage now. Each site had possessed a small power plant housed in a plascrete structure, a landing pad on its outskirts, and a tall communications mast. A casual mix of primitive and modern was startling. And everything was ridiculously oversized, too. Doorways twice the normal proportions, fittings far above head height, wrecked vehicles the size of landers. It was like someone had gotten a scale wrong when they were built. The troops began to advance through the cleared ground, spreading out and peering around. An explosion! squad went down, engulfed in a bright flash and pale smoke. The shrieks and cries of the injured overloaded the communications. Another unit began to fall back. It too was engulfed by explosions. It became clear. They were deep among the scattering of hidden devices. They had walked into a trap. A loud bang and a soldier crashed into the ground. Cover! yelled the squad leaders as their troops dropped to the mud or flung themselves into craters. More base thuds. Single rounds, no flashes, no obvious source. Soldiers fell, torn to pieces as shells ripped through them. As the leaders arose to urge their comrades onwards, they were targeted, picked off, kicked backwards by the force of the impact. Raising a head was suicide. The communicators were alive with chatter. It was the same at all of the sites. Explosions, booby traps, and horribly accurate fire. They were pinned, both battalions. They returned fire, of course, pouring rounds into the big structures and lobbing explosions. But they were shooting at shadows. Every few moments, an unseen cannon would roar again, and another Zash trooper, sometimes two if they were lined up, would fall. And when they did advance, more explosions would scythe through the brave attackers, scattering fragments of the corpses far and wide. And then the deadly accurate cannon would bark out again, their rounds blowing the tragic survivors to pieces. Weight of numbers carried it in the end, and although the casualties were appalling, a few scraps of platoons, foolhardy heroes all, were able to work their way to the structures and claim them, as though it mattered, for the Zass. But even that was a dance of death. Every heap of rubble or pile of logs was as likely as not to contain explosive trap 
that would shred through them. The battalions had been shattered, and they had yet to see a glimpse of their foe. The remnants of their units were scattered, and the few remaining soldiers huddled behind the shelter, or deep within craters, praying to the ancestors that were well enough hidden. They began to spot the bunkers once they knew what they were looking for. Exquisitely camouflaged, superbly sighted masterpieces of military engineering, and for certain, they were the sights of the itinerary. Every now and again, a boom would ring out from one of them, and another soldier, peering out from cover, would drop. Command notified the fleet, and a wave of reinforcements were sent. A battalion of combat engineers, skilled and hardened professionals. The fresh troops assaulted the bunkers. They poured fire into them. Squads dashed forward to emplace breaching charges. They rarely made it. They tripped yet more hidden devices, evil instruments that threw out a spray of shrapnel, metal, and glass, and stones that tore them into gory chunks. And to make it worse, the intensity of the foe's artillery fire suddenly increased as they drew close. With the rapid staccato bursts of the shells where previously there had been only single shots. The weight of the venicides cut through them. And there were bunkers that had been missed too. Their occupants waiting until they'd passed and suddenly opening up with a deadly accuracy. Catching them in a withering storm of crossfire. And even if they did get alongside the bunker, their breaching charges were pitifully inadequate. It was a fluke that they managed to crack an opening big enough to get inside at all. And that was mostly due to the damage caused by a lucky hit from the orbital bombardment. They cleared the way as best they could by flinging grenades. Thuds rang out as they detonated and dust filled the air. The engineers advanced, scrambling through the dragged crack and into the inky void beyond. There were demons within, actual demons. The interior was dark and thick with smoke, but they were there, and they could sense the soldiers. The monstrous weapons they wielded lit the space with their flashes and deafened with their roars. The rounds ripped clean through bodies, ranks at a time, and still punched holes walls. Returned fire was heaped blindly on their positions, and rounds impacted, striking and kicking up sprays of dirt and debris. Ineffectively, it seemed. Armor, or walls, or alcoves, or perhaps their thick hides had protected them. As their terrible weapons opened up again, tearing through the scrambling masses that had made it inside. The engineers charged, those behind stumbling over the smashed and writhing bodies of the first waves. They were on top of the monster, surging into the cavernous space as more of their comrades scrambled through the breach and pressed forward. The demons uttered bellows and howls as they fell back into the darkness, firing with their huge guns and hacking at the masses of attackers with blades that glinted and flashed and split bodies severing torsos clean in half and spattering trails of gore. A massive manipulator swept up a shrieking Zash trooper by its limbs and swung the poor unfortunate as a weapon, smashing swaths of its comrades aside before its mashed remains were hurled into the oncoming troops. 
More explosions ripped through the air, intensely loud and blindingly bright, shredding those nearby and rendering all within the structure senseless. Perception returned to those few that still lived. It was over. The demons were gone. They had accessed a hidden tunnel, an entrance to a subterranean network linking the bunkers together. The few who dared to peer inside could just make out a solid metallic door a little way in, firmly closed and blocking the progress. The engineers were broken, their companies decimated, the corpses piled high, and just a single empty bunker to show for their terrible sacrifice. Kaman notified the fleet and a wave of armored reinforcements, supported by the hallowed ranks of the personal guard, was sent. They landed a few emu away from the sites and formed up, dividing into powerful task forces. The vehicles trundled off towards their targets, drawing as near as they dared, and brought their turrets to bear, blasting the bunkers with their heavy guns. They continued shooting until the barrows were glowing hot and their ammo was gone. The bunkers had been pitted and smashed by the heavy fire, and blessings on the ancestors had been cracked open, holes just big enough for a few soldiers to scramble through. The demons did not return fire. The personal guard dismounted and advanced slowly and cautiously, moving with precision from point to point. They formed teams around the jagged hulls and lobbed every explosive they carried inside. After the intense thuds, they swung their weapons to bear and emptied near every magazine they carried too. Still, nothing. All the bunkers were empty. The demons were gone. They made their way inside. And then each bunker detonated, evaporated, consumed in a fiery blast that rolled outwards and tore up the ground. The shockwave crushed and mangled and flipped the heavy vehicles, scattering them like toys. The proud soldiers simply vaporized. No trace of them left. The sound hit a fraction later, a series of ear-bleedingly loud, ground-shaking kabangs that rolled and echoed between the hills. Craters, deeper than those from the bombardment, were all that remained. A few ragged, dazed, shocked survivors stumbled around amid the dust and smoke. The personal guard, as a military unit, had ceased to exist. The signals officer alerted fleet command. We have intercepted a part of a hyperwave transmission originating from the surface, she announced. I've had it translated. Play it! ordered the Admiral. It was the demons. We've been subjected to an unprovoked attack, an invasion by an armed force of the Association of Zass, said the tiny voice of the translator. This was lawfully granted to us. We have defended ourselves as best we can with as few weapons and supplies that we have at hand. Casualties are thankfully light, and we will continue to fight and resist to the best of our abilities. Though we are separatists, we are peaceful settlers, a few dozen simple farmers and miners. They continued, We know nothing of the ways of war. We lack military training, any effective means of continued defense. We respectfully appeal to the Terran government, to our ancestral home, 
for immediate military assistance. The Admiral halted the playback. He had read the reports. He had seen the images and the shocking casualty lists. Heavy armored vehicles cracked open like eggs. Seasoned companies swept away. So many faces that would never to return. Friends of ease, now and forever with the ancestors. A few simple farmers, what must their soldiers be capable of? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 932. Their planet is literally a hell, and we should probably nuke it. Or something. Written by Ortsmeiser. The whole mission was complete and utter bullcrap, and we all knew it. There is pomp and circumstance. One of these exploration probes that we had sent out actually found something. And we didn't know what quite yet. But almost all of our first contacts had been peaceful. And pretty much everyone ended up getting along. We were expecting to find signs of intelligent life in a more populated part of the galaxy. More stars generally meant more life. But it wasn't technically impossible or anything for life to be found more secluded. The probe had detected radio chatter in the middle of bumblefuck nowhere. It was pretty far from civilized space, so we'd have to use a rather imprecise jump drive to get into the general vicinity of the signal. And after that, we would have to track it down ourselves. Usually, the first contact team will hang in orbit for a while, get to know the culture, and learn the language. We'd give them the classic, we come in peace spiel and see how much it would work it would take to uplift them to spaceflight, and all of that. There had only ever been one civilization that we didn't help, and that was because they were genocidal maniacs, and they tried to shoot us down even after we told them that we weren't hostile. Now we just knock anything they make out of orbit and carry on as normal. Anyways, so we jumped in around the most likely candidate, it was a trinary system, the two innermost stars were robust, because there's no way that stars that big can have habitable planets. Next we tried a normal-sized red one that was orbiting the two, and there was nothing of interest. We were pretty confused, as there was only one more system in the region that it could be. Thing is, that system was a massive yellow star. There is no way that it was an uncontacted civilization. So we jumped in, expecting maybe to find an old satellite or a very lost ship, assuming that our probe didn't just malfunction and spit out a false positive. We looked around for a while, and no, it wasn't some lost idiot or a satellite. The third planet from the star was actually sending out some pretty intense signals. We kind of looked at each other, because this shouldn't be possible. My planet is what it was supposed to be like. Rocky planet orbiting a calm, normal-sized red star. One side always faced the star, making it into a nice tropical ocean. The other side was uh, another ocean, dark and cooler, but still pretty calm. The middle bit was ideal. It had the perfect amount of constant sunlight, a perpetual warm-ocean breeze. It had mild, predictable weather. It had a ton of oxygen for a very healthy biosphere and a strong magnetic field that kept out the radiation. Simply put, stars this big just couldn't support a habitable world. I mean, it's technically possible, but there are so many things that would have to go right, it would just be too unlikely. And yet, 
here we are. We fly closer in, and we see steaming pile of crap planet. It's enormous, for one. At least double the gravity of even the biggest habitable planet we know. Stepping on the damn thing would have broken every one of my legs immediately. Second, it was just fecking spinning all over the place at an angle. The temperature would have been inconsistent as hell. How could life evolve on this place? Not only that, but the atmosphere was terrible. It was so unbelievably thick, and it was full of nitrogen. <sighs> we, we looked at the land, and the poles were covered in water ice. The equator is covered in vast swaths of barren, dry land. Land itself makes up only about 30% of the planet. Anything surviving there would have to be seriously adept at living without oxygen, because, uh, percent-wise, it was only like half of what planets normally have. Anything living there would also have to be robust like nothing else, because just about any spot you pick will have to deal with both sunlight and lack thereof on a regular basis. The temperature fluctuations would alternating freeze and overheat most normal organisms to death rather quickly. Not only that, but there's a big-ass moon wreaking havoc on the oceans. Oceans and bodies of water just randomly flood areas. <laughs> the oceans randomly form giant killer waves and destroy coastlines. The weather is terrible, too. Storms get absolutely gargantuan. Giant funnels of tornadoes of death tear places up regularly. And static electricity builds up in the clouds and zaps stuff all the time. Also, it's geologically unstable. As an extra... Feck you to anything living there. There are mountains that spew molten rock all over the place and release plumes of deadly gases and sun-blocking ash. The crust is broken up into countless, constantly moving plates that randomly move around and shake everything up. And the craziest part is the godforsaken animals that live there. See, on a normal, reasonable planet, light is constant. After all, one spot on a tidally locked planet will be either always sunny or always dark, or somewhere in between. As a result, everything evolved to constantly be on the lookout for predators or food, because there wasn't ever any time that you could take a serious break. Lying down in the light surrounded by predators adapted for light is suicide. Lying down in the dark with predators adapted for the dark is similarly suicide. You have to be constantly vigilant, but brains chew through energy and produce a ton of waste. Too much, in fact, for the body to get rid of fast enough if you use every brain cell to the max. So my brain was at 100% all the time. It would quickly have so much waste built up, it wouldn't function properly. And that could be fatal. So the brains of all normal animals are limited to a reasonable speed. These... Hell animals, in a sense, get a bit of respite. They can rest during periods where other predators can't operate properly. Which means they get time to clear the brains of excess waste. This means that they're all adapted to use their brains to the absolute max, all the time. Except during breaks that they call sleep. When we first started decoding the radio messages that they were spewing out all the time, it was shocking. A normal human, the dominant species, can process information at more than double the speed of me. 
I'm pretty sharp as far as sapient creature goes. Just trying to read their comms after they were decoded and translated was a nightmare, because we got information far, far faster than we could deal with it. A human could easily hold a conversation with two of us at a time, and still get bored. And that's not all. When we were first observing them, we expected that they wouldn't see us coming, that we'd have a grace period to get everything figured out. Turns out, they absolutely knew about us, and they were scrambling to assemble thermonuclear weapons to hit our ship when we were bumbling around in front of their faces, not answering the hails. Their tech was far better than the level normally needed to get to space. But the sheer thickness of their atmosphere and gravity of their planet made it extremely hard to get into orbit. It's a good thing, too, because they could be a serious threat if they got into space. First, there's the thing about thinking faster than any other creature in the galaxy. They could just shoot you before you had your chance to respond, and that would be that. They have insane heat dissipation. Their entire body is practically hairless and they can just exude water to cool themselves in hot climates. This works so well, they originally hunted by running prey to death via exhaustion. They can outlast pretty much any animal they want in terms of physical exertion. Don't think the cold is safe either, they cover themselves in layers of thermal insulators regularly. They're endothermic, so they produce their own heat, and these insulators trap it. This is so effective that they can go just about anywhere they please. They're also pack animals, which means you're never dealing with just one. They can form a relatively cohesive groups in the hundreds of millions. They communicate visually and through sound, so they can transmit information extremely fast. They descend from tree-dwelling animals, so they can follow you up most vertical surfaces if they want. They're adapted for running, so they can outrun you if you try and run away on flat land. They can use their upper limbs as projectile throws, so distance doesn't always cut it. Their endurance and lack of hair makes them good swimmers too. They're used to stupidly high gravity, so they can tolerate anything you can. They need less than half the oxygen for you or me, so don't try to choke them out by screwing with the atmosphere settings on a ship. Funnily enough, in terms of strength, they're pretty pathetic on their planet. They can only kill most animals there by using tools. Uh, for us, though, it's a different story. The weakest of them are on par with the strongest of us. And things they can't do well at all, like smelling, sprinting, and heavy lifting, or hearing, can absolutely be done by the animals they've adopted. They've adopted, artificially evolved, and put up dozens of animals canines, felines, and dozens of other animals that supplement their abilities. Simply put, uh, they scared the shit out of us and violated pretty much every law of nature. We said hi and noped out of there. We didn't tell them where our planets were, and we didn't try giving them our technology. Their planet is a literal death world. They're in the near perpetual state of war, and we should just either nuke the planet back to whatever sadistic dimension it came from, or placate the fuck out of them, because somehow they reversed engineer one of our engines, and they have a habit of weaponizing just about anything they touch. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 933 Confrontational Conservation Written by Dathuin That easily was the most bizarre visitor I've ever seen.
I've spent many years at this quiet conservatory. My primary purpose is to observe the wildlife, but my secondary purpose is to monitor other sentients that come to visit the lush jungle moon. Eons ago, my people ravaged our planet's natural resources and drove much of our wildlife to extinction. But as we began to journey amongst the stars, we found that Axanus, the larger of our two moons, was capable of harboring life. Thanks to a few selfless individuals who had hoarded preserved samples, DNA and observational data on our wildlife, we were able to recreate a portion of our original biosphere on Axanus. Since then, we have perfected our terraforming efforts, recreating all the conditions of our homeworld, even injecting millions of tons of molten iron into the core to increase the natural gravitational pull within a millionth of a percent of that of our homeworld, all while pushing the moon further out to minimize the impact of the changes on the moon itself. We even reshaped the terrain to mimic that of the world before civilization. Now we have a perfect garden, wholly natural. It is common practice to visit for my people, to commune with the wildlife and environments of our ancestors. Though nothing of the original remains, this small haven is enough for us. It is sacred to our people, but our ancestors did not believe in something as petty as ownership. We only intervene to preserve the balance. Matter energy conversion beams precise enough to target specific molecules prevent contamination by bodily fluids, hair, skin, and waste. Anything taken into the sanctum is removed by the visitors or by our system. Visits must be scheduled, routes registered, and participants thoroughly vetted to prevent poaching or harm to the delicate balance of the garden world. The latest visitor, however, is quite strange. Most traverse the wilds with quiet awe, avoiding the wildlife. Many are researchers, xenobiologists, and the like. This man, Steve, was also a conservationist. Based on my research during the vetting process, its meaning is not unlike our usage of the term. However, I found it strange that he was away from his ecosystem. His vetting process, I was vexing as well. The humans were new to the Federation. So little prior to their acceptance was documented. The humans themselves had plenty of their own documentation that they merged with the galactic databases. But it wasn't as thorough as ours and barely met the minimum requirements. Even by human standards, though, this man had a little in the way of records. Aside from his birth, the only files he had on record were medical in nature. Often grave, sometimes even life-threatening, and almost always caused by some form of wildlife. Based on that alone, I would have denied him entry, but the third entry chronologically changed my mind. I am nothing if not thorough, so even though I had made up my mind by the second of his medical records, I persevered. I wanted my case for the denial to be beyond reproach. His petition had been handed to me by the office of our Ambassador General, after all. I would have read the whole thing either way, but the Ambassador General wouldn't accept a simple no. That third record changed my mind. Gunshot wound to the abdomen. I double-checked to make sure, and my suspicions were confirmed. He was injured with a projectile weapon. 
as I continued to peruse the records searching for specific citations that I could use to the case of denial. A terse report written by local authorities is what actually changed my mind. While in the wilderness observing a herd of elephants, Mr. Irwin discovered a group of uh, likely poachers stalking the herd. He confronted them and insisted they leave. He was shot during the ensuing altercation. He was evacuated by helicopter to the trauma center in Gaborone. I was confused. If he was a legitimate conservationist, then why the dozens of injuries from wildlife? I was answered quickly. As I remotely observed Steve, he didn't seem all that odd at first, aside from his habit of speaking to the camera drone he brought with him as if he were addressing a friend or audience. Sensors indicated that he was not, in fact, broadcasting anything, and the drone recorded everything, even his boring hikes through the wilderness, when he made and broke camp everything. It was his first interaction with the local fauna, the Crookan, that would set the tone for his entire visit, that revealed why he had so many injuries. It also made me wonder what kind of monsters live on that man's homeworld. Crookens are predatory creatures. They hunt by stalking their prey, by skulking from tree to tree. When the time is right, they drop down on their prey, latch on with their hind limbs, pin down their arms with their lower forelimbs, and strangle them with their upper forelimbs. One crooken, a juvenile male based on his downy fur, was stalking Steve through the trees as the human admired the many colorful flowers and fruits endemic to the tropical valley. Based on his behavior and a few of his comments, Steve knew about the crooken, even surreptitiously commanding his drone to glance up at the creature from time to time. Eventually, as he stood on his hands and knees next to a bush that can only be found in that particular valley, and spoke into the camera drone about it. The crooken dropped from the tree and latched onto the human, wrapping its short, strong arms around his neck. However, rather than panicking, as most do, Steve greeted it and continued to address the camera. He then sat back calmly in what I assume was a more comfortable position. Crikey! Steve exclaimed accurately describing the texture of the fur, the behavior, the hunting methods, and other interesting tidbits of information about the crookens, as it struggled in vain to close the human's windpipe. Other than a slight increase in the pitch of his voice, the human seemed largely unaffected by the crookens' attempt to kill him. He then began to do something that I had never in all of my life seen a sentient do. He began to pet it. Its arm head, neck, and eventually its chin. Due to the curvature of their arms and claws, the chin is a hard-to-reach spot for them, and you will often see crookens rubbing their chins on each other or on trees to scratch them. It's something that they thoroughly enjoy. This juvenile was no exception. As its grip around Steve's necks, torso, and arms began to slacken, Steve gently but firmly lifted the beast over his head, turned it around, and then lowered it into his lap. After a little fidgeting, he figured out the position in which the crooked mothers carried their young before they were strong enough to traverse the trees on their own, all while petting it and addressing it in soothing tones. Eventually, the crooked's instincts kicked in and latched onto him, nuzzling into the human's chest and cooing. 
All the while, Steve was listing off all of the most interesting features of the Crooken, occasionally addressing the Crooken itself. Finally, when he had given a rather thorough lecture on the Crooken to his drone, he gently plied the creature off of him, placed it on the trunk of a nearby tree, fed it a small frog that he'd plucked from that tree's roots, a common treat given to the infantile Crookens by their mothers while they were learning to eat solid food, and continued on his way. These bizarre interactions continued. Wild, dangerous beasts, the kind you'd give a white birth, would cuddle or lounge with him as he talked about them in calm, quiet tones at his drone. I quickly understood how he had acquired all of those injuries. This man had no fear, only love. It warmed both of my hearts to see this kind of conservationist, fearless in his love of nature, willing to risk life and limb to interact with them, yet always managing to do so on their own terms. He spoke to them, not just with words, but with his body language, demeanor, and tone. They all instinctively came to understand that he was no threat, only a passive observer, maybe even a friend. What concerned me, though, was that in spite of his recklessness, he wrapped up his two weeks of journey through over a thousand kilometers of wilderness with no injuries. And definitely not for lack of trying. Scatter claws slipped across his skin, Tolmo fangs squirted venom harmlessly across his forearm. Gamal constrictors hung from him like tightly wrapped shawls. Even the peerless Zorg beast, which would trample and gore anything that displayed even the slightest interfere or threat in their presence, grazed peacefully around him. They even allowed him to play with their young. Never in all of our history had anyone recorded an image of a sentient in the same frame as a living Zorg beast infant. And yet... There he was, carrying one at his shoulders as three more chased him around in play, the adults grazing idly in a protective circle around them. I could hardly tell the difference between his laughter and their praise of joy. When he left the herd the following day, he managed to mimic the sign of respect juniors show their seniors by getting down on his knees and elbows with his hands tucked under his chest, while tapping his chin to the ground. The matriarch actually acknowledged the gesture by lightly tapping the soil with one of her hooves, before the herd turned away and continued their migration. During the many boring stretches of Steve's visit, I researched him more, diving deeper into the human databases. I eventually stumbled across records of his ancestors in human entertainment media, he was named after a distant patrilinear ancestor, eight generations back, and came from a line of famed conservationists who sought to bring attention to the wonders of nature. As he left, we began the cleansing protocols, only to discover that aside from some hair, oils, and dead skin, he had left nothing behind, not even excrement or microbes. I revisited his list of equipment and found that he brought equipment specifically for that purpose. He carried all of his waste off the planet with him. He even sterilized his skin and internal organs beforehand, knowing that he would require rather extreme medical attention upon his return. 
While he was recovering, I received his request to visit Axenus again. This time, his route was through the remaining regions that he hadn't visited on his first journey. I approved it immediately, under the condition that he visit my conservatory first. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 934 You Just Have to Be More Human Written by Harris Tadaro I don't get it, Thrax said. How do they do it again? The team sat around the locker room with the quiet pallor of defeat hanging over them. The same way they do it every other time, Janique grunted as he loosened his synth suit by defying the odds. No one can defeat the odds that many times, Thrax argued, looking at his team. None of them said anything more than a shrug. They're humans, Nadil said it with a soft voice. But it's against mathematical probability, Thrax said. The odds of them beating our best defenses for the last 23 years of war games. What's that? One in three billion? Goron, the analytical member of the team, started to correct his leader. One in three billion, two hundred and sixty million, we get it, Aron interrupted. Uh, you don't need to go to the tenth decimal place again. Thrax looked at the only member of the group who hadn't said anything, the triplets. They looked at each other, as if they were silently talking. Finally, Tria spoke up. You can't have the best defensive plan, she said, and everything will go to plan. Until the humans find a way to put a grenade up your smell organ. Most of the squad laughed at that. Plus, that was embarrassing, Aran muttered to Thrax. They just left the debriefing with the school's top officials, all of whom who had praised the group's ability to last so long against the humans. You have done the Dragon Military Academy proud, Thrax said, imitating the school's top administrator. You lasted five seconds longer than any other Dragon Wargames squad in the history of the Wargames. Aron snickered quietly to herself, and Nadil, who was just in front of them, turned around to give him a shocked look. Thrax, she admonished, giggling slightly. Well, stupid, Thrax said. I'm sick of losing. Twenty-three years, we haven't even won a single match against the humans. As far as I know, the only people who have beat the humans are other humans. Do you know that they hold the competition to pick the team that faces our school's team? Why would they fight against each other? Garan said from behind them. What a waste of resources. They could have spent the time collaborating together to make themselves even better. There's a human, the red said, pointing down the hall from them. Why don't we ask him? Though she said it sarcastically, Thrax thought about it for a second. Well, why don't we? Janique frowned. Why would we? Well, we've tried everything else, Drax said. Haven't we? Let's do it, Tria said. The rest of the squad looked at the other triplets, who nodded their heads in agreement. Drax looked around his team for dissent. Well, uh, Aaron said. I was kidding, but whatever. Drax looked at Goran, who shrugged. We've never tried collaborating with our enemy before, he said. Not that I'm calling our allies our enemies. But in the war room there, we get it, Drax said, cutting him off. I'm okay with it, Nadil said. Everyone turned to look at Janip. What? he said. Well, Drax asked him. Janip groaned and rolled his eyes. Bullshit, he said. Let's just get it over with. 
Alexander sat patiently outside the restroom, waiting for the rest of his team to return. Somewhat bored, he gazed around the Trojan architecture. It was very uh, utilitarian. Not that he was unused to that, or that it was very different from the designs found at his academy. Looking down the hallway, he saw a large group of Trojans walking towards him. By the way they were staring at him, he figured that they might want something. Most of them had serious looks in their faces, or what passed for serious in the Trojan culture, and Alexander felt suddenly very alone. Calmly, he looked down at the wristpad and typed a few commands into his teammates. He also activated the microphone so they could hear anything that was about to happen. Human, one of the Trigans said. We would like to talk to you. Sure, Alexander said. Um, uh, what's in your mind? We have heard that your school holds a competition to choose the team that comes to face us every star revolution. Why? Um, Alexander frowned. Well, uh, why wouldn't we? We want the best team, don't we? But that is wasteful of time and resources, one of the Trigans said. Why don't you just choose the best soldiers? Well, um, Alexander said, um, okay, hold on, back up. The Trigans looked at each other and took one step back. This made Alexander smile. No, he said, that's just a thing us humans say. It means, uh, let's move back the conversation a little bit. The Trigans looked at each other again. How do you guys choose who the best soldiers are? Alexander asked. I mean, uh, what's the process? How did you guys get put on a team? Well, uh, one of the Trigans said, I was chosen to lead because I scored highly on various leadership qualities. Garan was chosen because of his analytical ability. Okay, Alexander interrupted. I think I get it. For us, it's totally different. We entered the academy when we were eight years old and immediately we put into squads. For the next four years, we're moved around until they find a group that really fits well together. After that, the group spends all of their time together. Practicing squad maneuvers, target practice, learning to work as a team. The Dragans were listening with an all-consuming interest. Every year, all squads over 16 years of age end up participating in the school war games competition. The victors come here to face your team and go on to face the teams from the other human military academies. But, the Dragan called Goran said, you waste all the time with the team maneuvers and practice. Couldn't you spend that time studying and learning? We are studying, Alexander said. We are learning. We're learning to trust each other, learning how to react quickly, learning how to adapt to new situations. There is no better teacher than experience. The dragons sat silent for a moment. How do you keep eating us? A soft-spoken dragon asked. Every time we think that we have the best defense and you just tear us apart. Alexander laughed. Well, sometimes the best offense is a good offense. But your plan had a 5.6% chance of success, the dragon called Goron said. Oh yeah, Alexander said, but that's just the odds. Sometimes you gotta take a little risk. The rest of Alexander's team chose that moment to reappear. Sergei, the tallest of the group, walked up and put his hand on Alexander's shoulder. You're ready to go, chief. Yeah, man, Alexander said. Just chatting with the Tragans here. Is everyone ready? Another one of the humans, Rahima, stepped forward. All present and accounted for, he said. But we're ready to go AWOL if we don't get something to eat soon. Well, Alexander smiled. In that case, we'd better find some grub. 
He turned back to the Dragons, who were all watching the humans' interactions closely. It was good talking to you guys, he said. See you tomorrow, right? Yes, the lead Dragon said. Our last batch. Good luck, Alexander said, with a smile and a wave. The best defense is a good offense, Jaleep said. That doesn't even make sense. What makes more sense is my theory that they cannot properly comprehend probability. It's like that when we tried to read the humans' most revered military literature, Drax said. They kept saying that the best way to win a war is to avoid one, and other such paradoxical statements. The squad was gathered around their private strategy room. It was getting late into the night, and they would start to lose their operational efficiency if they stayed up any later than they already had. You're awfully quiet, Nadil said to Goran. What's on your mind? Could you bring up the film from the last match, Goran said. Nadil, who was closest to the terminal, shrugged and did as he asked. Thrax frowned as he stared at the squad analyst. When he got quiet, he usually got ideas. Go back to the first point where they broke through our defenses, Goran said. Nadil did as he asked. Nah, red forwards, slowly. The team all looked at where Goron was pointing. They watched as one of the humans broke cover and charged the Trigun position, all while the other humans fired whatever they had at the Trigun position. They call it suppressing fire, Goron said. Our standard battle doctrine says that we should take cover and wait until their ammunition is depleted. However, while we do that, one of their teammates runs up and drops a grenade right next to Aran. Don't remind me, Aran said with disgust. After that, Goron continued, our defenses fell apart because we were counting on Aaron to keep her fields of fire. And I would too, Aaron said testily, if that crazy human didn't come up out of nowhere. But he didn't come out of nowhere, Drax said. He came from their position. How did he run through that crossfire like that, the deep said. Wouldn't he be worried about being hit by a teammate? That's what the human meant by trust, Tria said. He trusts them not to hit him. But we all know the probability distributions, Nadeep said, especially with the kinetic weapons. How can he be sure? Trier shrugged. They just do. Kind of like how I trust Dryer and Formal to save me a spot in the meal chamber if I'm going to be late. But you're never late, Jadeep said. But they would if I was, Trier said. How does this help us? Aran interrupted. We already have trust. I trust all of you to cover your fields of fire and to implement your part of the strategy. That's how we're able to adequately protect our flag from attack. Look at the humans, Thrax said. Look at the fields of fire. Almost all of them overlap. That's inefficient, Janip said. Yet efficiently kept our heads down, Corrin said, long enough for one of them to break up our defense. So, what are you saying? I'm saying, Corrin said, that I understand why they say it. Why the best defense is a good offense. Why? Because look at what we're doing, Goran pointed. Nothing. What is there for them to defend against? We spend all our time reacting to their attack, and we can't launch any of our own. So, Oren said. What he means, Thrax said, getting excited, is that you don't need to defend yourself and no one's attacking. Goran smiled. Right. Okay, Thrax said. I think I get it now. What else did the human captain say? He said they focus on learning how to react to changes and adapt to new situations, Nadil said. He means this, Goran said. 
moving over to the terminal and bringing up the first match of the series. Look! The team watched as the squad analyst adjusted the recording on the holotable until they got to the midpoint of the match. This is when Aaron took out the heavy gunner, Corrin said. The heavy gunner is typically responsible for a large area on the battlefield, but when the human's heavy went down, there was no let-up, was there? The analytics on the holotable told them that there wasn't. I mean, in total volume of projectiles there was, Corrin continued, but they organized themselves so that we still had to keep undercover. They called this redundancy, I believe. I call it waste, Jadeep said. Right, Corrin said. That's because we think differently from them. But what if we were wasteful? What if we were... What if we were humans? Aaron snorted. Well, uh, Thrax said. What if we were? No one said anything. Finally, it was Nadil who said something. Well, you said so yourself earlier, Thrax. That the only people who beat humans at war games were other humans, right? And so, Thrax said, maybe we need to be a little human to win here. But so what, Janeep said. We already lost. They already beat us in two matches. The third is more of a formality than anything else. Right, Thrax said. What do we have to lose? We already lost the series. But maybe we can do the impossible and win a match. The team looked at each other, trying to gauge what the others were feeling. Besides, he added with a smile, those are just the odds. Sometimes you have to take a little risk. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 935. Story number one, Death Sends His Regards, written by Dan and Angel. Batface watched the court from his perch on the Golden Emperor's throne. Only once before in his time, as the Emperor's fool, had he seen so many elites gathered in one place. And that had been for the birth of the Crown Prince. Now the great dwarven thanes, elven nobles, and even the chiefs of his people, the halfling clans, were here to see the human ambassador. He had to cover his mouth to stop from laughing out loud at that. Humans didn't have ambassadors. They were little more than monsters that huddled in the swamps, jungles, and deserts of the south. They'd lost their right to be considered civilized almost 500 years ago when the civilized races cast them down. The human knelt in supplication to the emperor. He was unarmed, of course, dressed in a coarse cotton clothes, little better than a farmer. Several large barrels at his back, tribute to the court. The guards had checked the barrels for magic and found nothing other than simple rune to keep the contents fresh. Badface hoped they held wine. You should be on your face, human, the emperor said. Rising to his feet, the human dared to look the emperor in the eyes. I knelt on the courtesy. Anything more will not happen. Badface almost fell from his perch in shock while a murmur ran through the court. How dare the human rise without being given leave, and worse yet, speak with such insolence? The emperor would make the human scream for that. It seems that your sentries in the wasteland haven't improved your manners. Let's get this over with, the emperor said, clearly bored with all of this. What is the message your leaders wish to give my court? 
We are declaring war on your empire, the human said. The murmurs became a roar. Some of the court laughed at the insanity of the human. Others demanded his head. A few asked if this was an average joke. Really? You humans believe you can defeat the Empire? The Emperor asked. The human shook his head. Humans alone? No, we couldn't. But we are not alone. The orcs, the goblins, the centaur march with our armies. They will be crossing your borders by this evening. My father was too kind letting your species live. We really should have done the world a favor and destroyed you along with your gods. What do you think your primitive, godless armies can accomplish? The human didn't answer immediately. He turned and lifted a plank from one of the barrels, revealing a grainy black powder. You destroyed the old gods, the gods of humanity. Orc, goblin, and centaurs were too weak to face yours. So he found a new god, one far stronger than your own. Now the court and the emperor laughed. Fat-faced laughed so hard he fell to the floor. The gods of the elves, the dwarves, and the halflings had ripped the weak and divided the gods apart, taking their powers to forge mighty weapons. The emperor and the gods would make the monsters scream for mercy before they died. The human waited for the laughter to die down, a small smile on his lips. When there was silence, he spoke, his voice cold and hard. Our new god is death. He sends his regards. A single spark fell from the human hand, hitting the black powder. The magical wards, both personal wards, and the far more powerful ones built into the room itself, fled to life. They didn't help. The small match set off the gunpowder in the first barrel, causing it to explode. The four other large barrels erupted a second later. The wards were set to absorb magic, not natural explosion. The nails and bits of jagged metal mixed into the gunpowder only added to the carnage. Fatface survived by the virtue of being on the floor, burnt and battered and holding his intestines in his hands. The fool stared at the court. A few of the lesser nobles were alive and standing, protected by the ranks of the higher nobles who had taken the brunt of the blast. Some particularly hardy and unfortunate members of the court had been closer to the explosion, screamed and groaned at agony. His eyes went to the throne. It had fallen. The golden emperor, the protector of the civilized world, the most powerful mortal in existence, lay broken and burned on top of it. End of story. Humanity's Weapons, written by Demoff the Tomb. Document has been deciphered and translated from the Orothet Code to Terran Standard. Ambassador Orleth's Personal Log, Unified Year 6044. Humans, well, they have been known to galactic community for just under a thousand years. They are widely accepted as the cornerstone of modern interstellar relations, despite their somewhat isolationist nature. 
My occupation has allowed me a rare chance to meet them in person on several occasions, as well as read some of the more historical archives. After what I've seen and how they influenced the galactic politics, my impressions of them in person and what I've read from their own history, I've come to the conclusion that humans, as a whole, are universally skilled in two things making weapons, and utilizing said weapons. For example, despite the advancement in war technology throughout the various galactic factions, humans have always been ahead of the game. And now, I know how. They are constantly trying to make weapons out of everything, even things that shouldn't logically be able to be used as a weapon. They use micro-FTL drives in their missiles to punch through shields. They use artificial gravity generators meant for interior deck plating as imploding space mines. They even use something they call uh, microwave ovens to jam FTL frequencies. It's insane, but I would have simply chalked it up to necessity of the galactic competition normally. But humans have been weaponizing things used in everyday life since the dawn of their species. According to the historical records, they've used animals called carrier pigeons as napalm carriers. They've used their own coin currency as ammunition and shrapnel cannons. Even their notorious gunpowder was discovered when a human was trying to make medicine. Yet, despite their reckless creation of frankly ridiculous inventions, it would seem that since their beginning, they have used their supposed most powerful weapon and tool. Words. I'm specifically referring to the foreign concept of lying. It would seem that since humans first learned to communicate with each other, they have crafted lies to deceive each other for various reasons. How intelligent beings were able to lie and combat against their own kind without wiping themselves out in the early stages of evolution is still a mystery to me, as humans are unique in speech. However, once humans began interacting with other species, that practice of deception paid off, as no other species is as skilled as they are in the art of lies. The prime example of this is humanity's first contact with my people. After the humans had achieved their first FTL flight, they were recognized by the intergalactic law as an independent people that could fend for themselves. That is to say, a fair game for more militaristic and expansionist factions. Envoys were sent by the Galactic Council to inform humanity that they had the standard three-month grace period before the Council's legal protection ended. Normally, a species uses the grace period to prepare defenses, evacuate, and some just let their conquest happen. While protective alliances with other factions have been attempted, rarely do they succeed since a new species has nothing to offer for protection. Humans, however, are devious and schemed of the biggest con ever. Humanity sent an envoy to the Sati, the most economically influential species at the time. The humans proposed an alliance with them. Of course, the Sati brushed them off as desperate and worthless, but quickly changed their mind once the human envoy informed the Sati that humanity was allied with the Litbok. 
the most numerous militant species in the quadrant. An alliance with humanity meant a subsequent alliance with the Litbok, meaning even greater economic opportunity and influence. This, of course, was a lie. At least it was at that moment. At the same time, the meeting with the Sati, another human envoy was meeting with the Litbok, who of course proposed an alliance with them. Humanity claimed it would be beneficial since they had allied with the Sati. An alliance with humanity creates a subsequent alliance with the Sati, meaning trade deals and access to space lanes. And so, both the Sati and Litbok allied with the humans, thus giving humans not just the protection they needed to survive after the grace period without firing a single shot, but also the influence to become an irreplaceable member of the galactic community. And it was all thanks to the humans' most powerful and unique weapon, deception. As humans would say, the pen is mightier than the sword. End log. End of chapter. Tales from Outer Space 936. What goes around comes around. Written by Admiral Marsupial 3. Nobody liked this, but there was nothing they could do. It was blatantly an attempt to expand the Teresi Empire into the resource-rich soul system and subjugate a powerful Deathworld race before they could defend themselves. The humans had been nothing but peaceful and friendly since they ascended to the Galactic Council. No one wanted this, but the Teresi had played this perfectly. When other races tried to object, saying that it was against everything the Council stood for, the Teresi dismissed the objections. The spirit of the law isn't our problem. The letter of the law is what is important. Will this council abandon a system of law and order that they have spent millennia building and maintaining? The Teresi had argued that the humans were a clear threat to them, and being on their border, they were legally allowed to preemptively defend themselves. Although the humans were deathworlders and known for being brilliant military tacticians and soldiers, this alone wasn't enough, though, especially considering their conduct since first contact. Then their confidential records were hacked and released. Everyone knew that it was the Therasi, but no one could prove it. These records documented and proved many of the dark rumors about how humans had treated each other before first contact. How their spies and intelligence agencies had destabilized rival nations to weaken them when a direct attack wasn't possible. This, along with the fact that humans had hidden these records, had been a final piece to the Theresi needed to legalize their plan. Although the humans were the first Deathworlders to reach the stars, any individual capable of fighting multiple members of any race at the same time and winning, even Though they were the premier military tacticians amongst the galaxy, they didn't stand a chance against the Theresi and a war, and even the humans knew it. The humans numbered less than 20 billion and had only joined the wider galactic community 10 years ago. The Theresi numbered in the tens of trillions and were much more technologically advanced than the humans, having been amongst the stars for thousands of years. The declaration of war was approved as legal. The Erosa representative stood and requested to bring a new matter to the council. The speaker approved this move to new business. 
The Erosa were the most technologically advanced race in the galaxy, once having the most prosperous empire in the Milky Way. Until they had committed a great crime and had their empire torn apart by the combined might of the Galactic Council. The humans were outraged. You've doomed our people to death and subjugation, and you just move on to the next point of business like nothing has happened. The speaker sympathized. I appreciate how terrible this must be for your people, but the matter is clearly resolved under the law, and we have 450 quadrillion beings we're responsible for. We cannot stop functioning of the council because of less than 20 billion. I'm sorry. The Arosa ambassador waited patiently for the uproar to die down. They hated the Teresi and liked the humans. They didn't want them to be punished for interrupting them, so didn't complain to the speaker. Once the chamber was silent, they began. As you all know, several decades ago, a shameful dark secret of our people was uncovered. Our leaders had created a secret unit to abduct and experiment on other races, so we could further our scientific knowledge and tighten our grasp on power in the galaxy. As part of our deserved punishment for those transgressions, we were ordered to provide compensation to the races affected. I am here today to unfortunately heap further shame upon my people. There is a race we have not yet put things right for. The humans. The Teresi saw this for what it was. A way to exploit the law to strike back at them by strengthening the humans before their invasion. This was because the Teresi pushed for such harsh punishments from the Erosi's crimes. And it was their turn to be outraged. As they started shouting their objections, the Speaker of the Council interjected again, You know the rules of this chamber. You don't interrupt another race while they are presenting new business. You will get your chance to ask questions and raise objections afterwards. The Erosa continued as the humans sensed there may be hope after all. I have submitted to the Council proof from our own files of abduction and experiments on these poor victims of our terrible crimes. Unfortunately, due to the previous compensation that we've paid out to, we cannot offer financial compensation or any physical resources without leaving our people unable to survive themselves, so we cannot offer either. The humans saw their last hope fade. The Rosa continued. We do, however, have a possible alternate solution. Under council law, if someone is unable to meet a legally determined compensation, they can offer other legal means of compensation if the victims accept the payment. We are willing to offer the humans half of our remaining ships and weapons, plus the manufacturing facility. The Tarasi, realizing that armed with the Rosa technology, the humans would be more than able to repel them, and once again were outraged. You can't do that. Galactic law clearly states you cannot provide weapons technology to a race that doesn't have access to that technology themselves. This is a blatant attempt to interfere with legal conflict with humans. The speaker stopped the Tarasi again. I have told you once already, do not interrupt a fellow member before they have finished speaking. 
Nerosa started to remove the helmet, shocking the entire chamber. None in living memory had seen their faces. As their helmet was removed, it revealed their large, bulbous heads with grey skin and large eyes. The humans gasped. Greys are real! Erosa continued to address the now shocked and silent chamber. To address the Terosa point, we would usually be unable to offer such payment. However, as you are aware, several of our kind scrubbed a lot of records from our legal activities in an attempt to avoid recrimination once the Council's investigation began. Upon review of the humans' own history, we have found further proof of our actions against these people. Please see the attached file regarding something the humans call the New Roswell Incident. It clearly shows that one of our ships crashed on their planet and was recovered by humans. Therefore, as they have access to this technology already, we aren't breaking any law. The Tarasi interrupted again, now seething with rage. Even the humans' records show that this isn't true. These records, all the Erosa call them, are conspiracy theories spread by nut jobs and confirm as such of their own records. There is no proof to back up the Erosa's ludicrous claims. This is truly a desperate attempt to illegally influence the war. As revenge against us for making sure that they are suitably punished for their vile crimes. Once again, the speaker made herself heard again, now with a very annoyed tone in her voice. If you interrupt before the fellow council member has finished their allocated time again, I will have you found in contempt of the council and removed from this chamber. The Erosa, completely unflustered, continued once more. Thank you, speaker. As you know, the human governments at the time were well known for underhanded and secretive programs. It is in fact part of the justification for the Theresi's declaration of war. I believe the direct quote is, uh, Further proof of the humans are justifiable threats to our sovereignty is demonstrated by the previous disruption of rival governments on their own homeworld. Their own records provide proof that the falsified records about these incidents to avoid recrimination show that their current claims that they don't do that anymore can't be taken at face value, even though the Council have found no proof that they are planning such an act at this time. The nation our ship crashed in was one of the main perpetrators of these acts against rival nations. The same acts Tarasi are using as justification for their invasion so by their own admission, those records cannot be entirely taken for fact. Although this isn't proof enough on its own, around this time one of our ships went missing in that area. One of our light frigates, not a large ship, but, embarrassingly, one of our more advanced ones. I would like to point out, before the Thurasi claimed that we have falsified this report, the record was logged with the Council at the time and is a verified, genuine record that has been in the Council database ever since. Therefore, it is legally reasonable to assume that the humans have access to the technology. Therefore, our offer is within Council rules. I will now accept any questions. The seething Theresi were unsurprisingly the first to speak. If they have this technology, why don't they use it? 
as it is so clearly vastly superior to what they are currently using. The Therasi were certain this massive hole in the Erosa's argument would have ended the matter. They were not happy at the smug look on the Erosa's face as they began to answer. The regulations are very clear. They must have access to the technology through legal means. It doesn't say that they have to understand or be able to reproduce it. As the ship crashed there due to our illegal activity, not the humans, they are legally entitled to the salvage. And as evidenced by the records that one of our people was recovered alive from the crash, the ship was functional when they retrieved it. The Therasi lost its temper and started shouting at the Erosa. You know full well that's not what the regulations mean. It was created to allow the procure to receive repairs to technology. They lost the ability to rebuild themselves. After, a supernova destroyed their home world and central scientific database. Erosa smiled as she replied. As you pointed out earlier, the spirit of the law isn't our problem. The letter of the law is what matters. So we ask the humans, although our offer of compensation is below the council's set value of compensation, will you accept our humble offer to settle our debt to your people? The human representative, Ambassador Torre, was shocked, and it took a few minutes of started attempts to get out her reply. Uh, um, we, um... The Ambassador Torre took a breath and regained her composure. We do. Thank you for your attempts to correct this wrong against our people. Upon delivery of the offered compensation, we will consider our debt to our people paid, and would like to say... Uh, the Therasi erupted in anger and started shouting threats and abuse. The speaker had enough and had the Therasi representative dragged from the chamber. With their opposition gone and their behavior having angered the other races, the Erosa's proposal was accepted by the council. Immediately after the council session, Dore approached the Erosa ambassador. Thank you. You have saved our entire species. We're so lucky you had the record of what really happened. It was so long ago. We genuinely believed it was a conspiracy theory. All of our records show that it was an experimental military plane that had crashed and was covered up. It was. Our ship was vaporized when the engine malfunctioned due to an illegal modification that had been made. But records were falsified to avoid punishment. I am the only person left alive, apart from you now, who knows the truth about what happened. Why take the risk of lying to the council, when you are already in such a weakened state yourself, to help us? What I said isn't entirely untrue. We do legally owe you compensation. We did, I am ashamed to admit, abduct one of your people to experiment on. When they were on that ship, an incident occurred. One of our kind, an ambitious piece of shit called Tyrrell, released your fellow human from their imprisonment. Ambassador Torre tried to carefully word a reply. At the risk of angering someone who may have just saved our people, if I may be blunt... He doesn't sound like a piece of shit to me if he was freeing our people from illegal and non-consensual experimentation. He didn't do it for the people for some moral objection. In fact, it was his idea to abduct one of you. 
The reason he did it was because he was related to the leader of the science team who were running the experiments, who was a very wealthy person in our society. He intended to disgrace the leader so that they would forfeit their belongings and assets. It would have worked if not for the second part of his plan. Trell wasn't only second in line for the inheritance of the assets. The leader's infant daughter was first in line. During the confusion of trying to recapture the enraged Deathworlder, he would kill the infant, knowing it would be blamed on the human's rampage. As him, the gods were paid off, went complete to his plan. The human had almost reached the escape pod, which was near the leader's quarters, for obvious reasons. The human saw what was about to happen and attacked Trial and the guards. They could have escaped, but stopped to help an infant they didn't know of a race that had kidnapped and experimented on them. They saved its life, and succumbed to the wound suffered in the fight, and died not long after. One of your people sacrificed their life to save an infant of a race that inflicted great pain upon them. An infant who also happens to be my granddaughter. The fact that repaying the debt fucked over the Teresi is what you humans would call icing on the cake. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 937 Dial a Human, written by Podge, writes. Chorus uncoiled the tentacle and depressed the ignition switch one last time, hoping against all reason that the issue with these transport's engines would have fixed itself. The hydrogen-fueled motor sputtered once, twice, and then went silent. The same myriad warning lights continued to flash merrily across the dashboard. A few new ones had joined in. Chorus sighed morosely and pulled himself from the vehicle. Outside the sky of Amak 4 was the bright azure, but the twin suns were beginning to set, and Chorus was reminded that the night was not very far away at all. Any luck? asked Mola, his mate and the only other sapient being on the planet. She stepped out from behind the car storage area and handed Chorus an open pack of rations. Chorus reddened with shame. I'm afraid not, he explained, kicking a broad rubber tires of the supposedly highly reliable vehicle. The primary power coupling is not responsive in the least. I don't think that we'll be moving it by ourselves. The admission was painful for Chorus. After all, it was he who dragged Mona outside of the relative safety of the lander's sensors and point defense range, all in the name of excitement. Their trip had admittedly been thoroughly enjoyable, up to the point where, an hour or so ago, the ground transport's engines had abruptly stopped just as they were cresting the top of a rather beautiful hill, covered in soft purple ground-hugging plant native to the planet. Where does that leave us? asked Bola. Well, there is always walking, suggested Chorus, but he wasn't being serious. The land was a good three hours away by vehicle, which translated to more than a day of hard slog that neither of the pair realistically had the experience to undertake safely. You're not serious, declared Mola, missing Chorus's little joke. There'll be food for the Borsa come nightfall. The Borsa were the planet's answer to apex predators. With more teeth than claws and more claws than teeth, 
as Muller had described them when they first encountered. Of course I'm not serious, spat back Chorus, his nerves beginning to fray. But what's the alternative? We could call for a pickup, but it'll be weeks before we can expect help. I don't know about you, but I don't have those kind of credits just lying around. Calm down, demanded Mola. We'll figure something out. What about the teleporter? Could we dial in the parts you need? I've seen your duty spec. You're cleared for light vehicle repair, right? Chorus felt the anger from a moment ago fade from him, and the intense feeling of shame return. He knew his little secret would come up from the moment the engines gave out. He had put off telling Mola for long enough. She'd understand. He was sure. Um, not exactly, began Chorus, looking shameful. I put that down on the grant application to meet the university's minimum safety requirements for field work. I don't really know a fuel intake from a... Well, something that isn't a fuel intake. Chorus relaxed, relief flooding through him at having finally come clean. Sometime later, after the screaming had stopped, Chorus gingerly removed the bandages from his fore tentacle and applied a second round of disinfectant to the wounds Mola's thrown bag of hot rations had made. One could never be too careful on unexplored worlds, after all. Mola still regarded him angrily, but he could see concern beginning to creep back into her face. The shadows were growing long. Night would soon be upon them. What about the teleporter then? Mola asked again. Let's dial in a... I already told you, exclaimed Chorus. I don't know what to do with the parts. Hydrogen is explosive, you know. We can kill ourselves trying to fix that thing. He gestured at the broken vehicle with his good appendage. Would you kindly shut up and listen for a moment? Shot back Mola. I was going to say, let's dial in a human. Chorus shut up from his seat. A folding canvas chair wrought in anticipation of a now-forgotten picnic. A human, he screeched. Do you know how unethical that is? What if someone found out? Not that would matter. We'd know, and that's more than enough. They don't think it's unethical. The humans don't mind at all, answered Mola. The panic now beginning to edge in her voice. In the distance, Chorus heard the plaintive cry of some alien animal. Probably a hungry one, he thought bitterly. It should be illegal, snapped Chorus. But it is not, Mola shot back. By the elders, Mola, you sound like an apologist. We can't do that. It's bad as murder. It is murder. I don't care how the humans see it, but the balsa can eat us for all I care. Some thirty minutes later, after the two researchers had fended off the first balsa attack with the aid of a couple of stowed away hunting lasers, Mola found herself bandaging up Chorus's other tentacle. You're lucky I didn't lie about my first aid training, idiot, she said, but her voice was devoid of any real anger. But that was a very brave of you. Nice shot, too. Chorus shrugged his shoulders, but winced at the pain the move elicited. It's nothing, he replied, not believing for a moment that it was anything other than the most amazing thing he'd done in his entire life. Then he remembered the teeth and the claws, but also the teeth, and shuddered. You know, began Chorus, I think it might be a good idea to dial that human now. 
The gift of teleportation technology was possibly the most interesting and civilization-changing event of first contact between humanity and the galactic civilization at large. Certainly, the advent of clean fusion power changed human economic activity in a fundamental way. But teleportation was a revolution in and of itself. A simple exploitation of quantum physics and an n-dimensional space. The technology itself had been condensed into a deceptively simple-looking plate about one meter square. Any transmat, as they were called, could send or receive matter to any other operating within the same transmission protocols, instantly and over any distance, in complete violation of both relativity and preservation of mass and energy. It was a scientific miracle, and one used galaxy-wide for the movement of goods. Humanity, however, put it to uses that, to the galaxy at large, were as disturbing as they were useful. Taming the Dawn, Chapter 2, Page 96, Garlax et al., GS2216 Patricia Bolton had been a lot of things in her life. Variously, a pilot, bodyguard, bartender, and even briefly, and regrettably, a farmer. But she was quite sure that her current job was by far the most satisfying that she'd ever had. Dial, a mechanic, was the brainchild of a couple of Silicon Valley engineers, who had started the late-to-the-party social networking firm, but transitioned into teleportation applications pretty much immediately after first contact. While everyone else was busy sending humans around Earth, her bosses looked outward to the bigger markets. For her part, Patricia enjoyed traveling, enjoyed meeting strange new people in strange new places, and she enjoyed working with her hands. The frankly absurd pay didn't hurt either. For reasons she still didn't quite understand, aliens paid through their nose for this kind of service. Hell, they practically insisted on it. Patricia had been doing it for years now, had more than enough cash squared away, but she'd seen no reason to quit just yet. She enjoyed the work, and in the back of her head entertained the notion that someday she'd jump to a world that charmed her so much she'd just stay there and have her fortune wired to whatever the locals used as a bank. Looking around, Patricia was quite certain that today was not that day. The world that she had just teleported to stank heavily of ammonia, and she was glad with a company-issued rebreather. The transmat was smart enough not to send you into any environment that was really dangerous, but sometimes its definition of habitable environment was somewhat suspect. Hi, she chirped cheerily to the two tentacled quadrupeds that stood before her, my name's Patricia, but you can call me Pat. How can I be of assistance today? She was long past the point where any alien could face her in appearance alone, and these two were far from the weirdest that she'd ever seen. They looked injured, however, which did give her pause. Besides the two, their relatively standard-looking ground car smoked ominously. Folks, um, if you need a medic, I can pop back and bring someone back with me, she asked. No! They both screamed at once. Patricia took a step backwards. She also took note that one of the two appeared to be armed. We mean, said the injured one, I'm not that badly injured. It's nothing. Please just look after the car. There's no need to bring anyone else through. It's lovely to meet you, by the way, said the other, the translator giving her voice a sweet and charming overtone. Um, sure, 
replied Patricia. Aliens are so weird, she thought, but kept it to herself. So what seems to be the problem? Horace and Mola regarded the human nervously as it worked. The pale creature had begun expertly disassembling the vehicle, and was in the process, presumably, of locating and fixing the fault. We can't let her leave, said Chorus, careful to mute the microphone of his translator so that the human wouldn't understand. You know that, don't you? We must stop her. It's the only ethical thing to do. We can't just kidnap her, Chorus. If she wants to go, she'll go, Mora replied. We could break the transmat, suggested Chorus. That way she'd have to come with us. They carry a spare. We'd just be out of a transmat, explained Mola. Sorry, Chorus, there is no stopping this. We've already gone too far. A short while later, Patricia had set up some lighting around the vehicle, located the problem, a cracked fuel mix regulator, and had one of her colleagues transmat her the part. She'd been about to go back to the part itself. After all, it was usually easier to locate when you knew exactly what you were looking for, and the transmat meant her workshop was practically just a few feet away. But the two aliens had stopped her. Please, just get someone to send it to you, begged the one who had introduced himself as Chorus. You can do that, right? You know the part number. Please, this is bad enough as it is. Patricia didn't understand what they were getting at, but she acquiesced to the request. The customer was always right, after all, and she had found the best to just play along with most alien customs. After all, she imagined humanity probably had their own weird tics that they were just as blind to. Within an hour, she had the part installed, the engine recalibrated, and everything back to running again. Some small furry creatures had inexplicably attacked her in the middle of it all, but they had fled after Patricia kicked one into the nearby ravine. She felt bad about it, but the thing's claws had almost ruined her pants and the two aliens had looked ready to offload half a gigawatt of lasers on the poor things. So all in all, her boot was probably saved the creature's life. Well, other than the one in the ravine. Well, said Patricia, patting her hand on the now purring vehicle, I think you're good to go. You folks need anything else tonight? Uh, no, the one called Murder said. That's it. But please, would you like to come with us? We have a ship not far from here, and I'm sure that we could get you back to Earth some other way. Patricia laughed. Lady, Earth is over 200 light years from this planet. It would take years to get back. I'd get written up for sure. She was joking about the last part, but still, the offer had made her curious about something. Listen, she said, I've been doing this job for nearly a decade now, and every so often I meet someone like you who offers to give me a lift back the slow way or seems really upset that they've hired me at all. Some even offer me money to stay. What's up with that? Do you guys get attached easily, or something? Chorus and Mola regarded each other, then turned to the human. Chorus pointed at the transmat. Do you know how that works? he asked. Um, sure, answered the human. I'm not up to the precise physics, but basically you get in one end and come out the other... That's not it, explained Chorus. It's not a doorway. The device renders... Uh, it renders your molecular structure into energy and transfers it via quantum superposition to a new location. The creature seemed distraught, as though it had just confessed to murder. 
Oh, said Patricia. Yeah, I remember that from orientation. Uh, so? So, asked Mola. So it destroys the matter you're made of and reforms different matter in the exact copy of you at the other end. There's a discontinuity of experiential existence that's philosophically identical to murder. Now, both creatures were waving their tentacles in counterclockwise motions, while simultaneously discharging a yellowish liquid from pustules around their mouths. Her translator helpfully informed Patricia this horrific act constituted their equivalent of crying. Oh, Patricia said again. Um, I see. Well, that's very, uh, sad. If you could just sign this, I'll be on my way. Don't you see? cried Chorus. We killed you to fix our car, and when you go, we'll have killed you again. Gods, I wish the poor sir had eaten us so that we could have died with a clear conscience. I, I'm so sorry, sobbed Mola between tentacled wave convulsions. I, I didn't mean I think there would be like this. Didn't you ever wonder why humans are the only species in the galaxy to use transmat to send actual people anywhere? Asked Chorus. It was invented on a dozen worlds, and all recognized it was essentially an execution device, very useful for goods and commerce. But for travel, only humans lack the innate philosophical sense to recognize it for what it is. You don't even know what you're doing to... Listen, cried Patricia. How about you shut the hell up? I can see that this is very upsetting for you, but please, I'm fine. She turned about to demonstrate this fact. How about we all calm down and you two sign the damned receipt? She thrust the clipboard at the aliens, careful to avoid getting any of the thick yellowish tears on the paperwork. The two creatures slowed the tentacle twirling to a comparably sedate rate, and eventually one of them was coaxed into signing. Before she left, Patricia did her best to convince the two that she wasn't about to commit elaborate suicide. But there was no convincing them. One insisted on keeping her name tag as a uh, memento, and the other was busy arranging some rocks into a makeshift memorial to place it on. Patricia was only too pleased to leave the pair behind, and quickly made her way back towards the transmat. As she left, she heard the two break into sobbing once more and what sounded suspiciously like a funeral dirge. Back on Earth, one of Patricia's co-workers eyed her curiously. You okay, Patricia? he asked. Penny for your thoughts. Oh, it's nothing, she replied contemplatively. I just, uh, do the transmats ever make you feel a bit weird? Like you're not quite yourself? Like you're missing something? Or you've forgotten something? Patricia gazed deeply into the bottle of light beer she opened and considered her latest trip to an alien world. She! Chorus cried, raising the bottle of inebriant he'd opened as soon as they returned to the lander. She was one hell of a mechanic! I know what you mean, replied Mola. How desperate their race must be to throw their lives away so often. Patricia Bolton, she intoned, holding the name tag in one tentacle. Will... Never forget. Mola was cut off by a flash of light and the hum from the transmat. Hi, Patricia said to the two shocked figures. I almost forgot. Please take this coupon for 10% off your next use of dollar human. Have a nice day. She waved jovially at the unmoving aliens as she stepped back through the device again, chuckling to herself quietly. 
How had she almost forgotten the voucher? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 938 Pretty Little Death Worlders, The Ultimate Sacrifice Cheers erupted across all of Sol as the craft's central engines died. Mosova sank into her command chair. A tremendous weight had just been lifted off her shoulders. She, of righteous fury, chirped her own approval and gave Mosova a reassuring pat on the shoulder with one gigantic forearm. Aboard the craft, things were not nearly as so jubilant. War Queen Pyamarani had sunk into her own command chair, but out of despair, not relief. She listened to her advisors explain their situation with mounting dread and disbelief. Dismise, said FG-9982, the engineering advisor. We are stuck. We do not have an easy way to fix the situation. The odds of a dark engine just vanishing out of reality are slim to begin with, and coupled with the amount of matter which would be required to make an engine the size of the crafts disappear, we assume it would just never happen. We don't have a spare engine core of that size. That means that we can't recharge, because there isn't anything to recharge. We do have spare engine cars for the auxiliary engines, added Nalperit, the manufacturing advisor. But they are not big enough to take the place of the central engine car. Making a new car can be done, but it would take time. Time we do not have, Marani replied. She sighed deeply. Well, my counsel, this is a disaster beyond words. Unless someone comes up with a truly brilliant plan, and believe me, I'm trying my best. This could well be the end of us. It has been an honor to be your war queen. The room fell silent. Everyone present racked their brains for a suitably brilliant plan. Well, if our last feels, we could detonate the auxiliary engines. It'd probably do a lot of damage to the planet blue. A final fuck you to the Stellar League. I like it. We're not gonna do that, Morani snapped. But it is kind of amusing to think about. Back Commander Cull was becoming increasingly frustrated. First Hermes, as he was now calling himself, had gone missing. Then a bounty had been put on his head. Then the whole crew had been put in quarantine, which seemed to mostly consist of propaganda sessions. The door to the secure chamber slid open violently, and a group of heavily armed guards marched in. The pack captain scoured the room with his eyes, which eventually settled on Cal. Pack Commander Cal, War Queen Pyamarani has ordered that you be sentenced to death for treason. Do you have anything to say before your sentence is carried out? There was a pause, and then an uproar. The entire crew of the insert name here was on their feet in seconds, yelling and snarling in the pack commander's defense. The guards pointed their weapons around the room, but it didn't quell the fury. Weeks of frustration were bubbling over all at once. Cal felt her heart race. Treason? Oh yes, she had given up the comcodes, but that had been part of the deal to get them all out of there. Now she was to die for it. She took some deep, steadying breaths and raised one paw to silence her crew. They didn't listen. Sorry, back commander, little eight said over the chaos, but we're not going to let you walk to your death. Not after all of this. There is no reason for you all to die too, Carl shouted back. 
the back captain pulled out his sidearm and pointed at a cow. Those last words will do. I will note them down. Before he could fire, however, the lights in the room flickered and died. It was a great shudder throughout the entire structure of the craft. The crew took this as their opportunity and leapt at the armed guards as one great mass. Destroyer crews could number close to 500, and this particular crew were bound together more tightly than most thanks to their odd experiences. They moved as one. The guards fired their weapons, striking true at many moments, but in seconds they were overrun. Cal roared and leapt into the fray herself. By the time the lights came back on, only the crew of the insert name was left standing. Lucky ears groaned. We're in deep shit, aren't we? Absolutely, Cal replied. Move the fallen to honorable positions while I figure out what to... There was a horrible scraping sound as one of the sealed maintenance tunnels had its grate forced off. Hermes crawled out. He was far skinnier than he'd been when Cal had last seen him. But he was alive. Oh no, did they already show up? Little Eights gave Hermes a tackle hug, knocking him into the wall. Cal smiled, despite the situation. Let the technician go, Little Eights. Begin, I mean, uh, Hermes, anything to report? Well, I was about to report that they were going to execute you. Though I think you already got that message back, Commander. Indeed. Did you cut the lights? No. Hermes pursed his lips in thought for a moment. I, um, I actually have no idea what that was about. Crosspoles, a comm technician who had once worked on the INH's bridge, cocked his head and listened intently. Something's wrong. The humming sound that we had heard earlier died when the lights died. What was making that noise? Hermes scratched his chin. Could have been the main gun, but if it stopped without firing... No way! Little Eight's eyes went wide. Did something happen to the main engine? That would take out the power and stop the gun. Carl went cold. Did they somehow destroy our engine core? Technicians, could the League do that to our main gun? Given that they haven't told us what they did to our ship's engines, Hermes replied, I'm going to go with possibly. And if they did, then the craft can't even recharge from a local star. Many members of the crew who had heard this discussion suddenly looked very uncomfortable. After all, not everyone was quite on board with the interspecies friendship as Hermes and Cal were. To a majority of the last, this situation sounded like a species-wide death sentence. The craft hung limply just outside of the Martian atmosphere. Her auxiliary engines were keeping her in a stable orbit. Though many Martians became very paranoid that she would get closer and squash them flat. Last ships swarmed around the false moon like ants guarding their nest. Getting them out of the way was going to be a problem. We need to land our transport ships before the last do something stupid, Mosava explained, such as uh, detonating their remaining engines and roasting Mars just to spite us. Could they really do that? The Queen Admiral asked. Well, uh, a human would consider it. Ah, point taken. Yes, sir, we must hurry and clear a path. The forces of the League exited the asteroid belt en masse, going straight for the craft. They descended like a horde of locusts. Martian ground defenses provided cover for them, taking out as many ships that got too close to the planet's surface. In the distance, transport ships loomed. It was the largest ground invasion force in history. 
any present species history, albeit only because the last weren't much for invasions. Aboard one transport vessel was an infamous Captain Singh. He had expected to be called upon to secure uninhabited worlds for humanity as they went to space. He hadn't expected this. As the ships descended and the battle raged, the new broadcast cut from the silence of space. The last probably would have ignored it if it hadn't been labelled For War Queen Paya Marani. Such a message had to be brought to the War Queen on penalty of death. Even then, Marani probably would have ignored it if she hadn't been faced with the end of her species. It was a two-way broadcast offer. The League wanted to talk, and Marani didn't have anything better to do as her species died. She accepted the call. The image of Ambassador Mickey Yamada appeared in a personal comm screen. Am I speaking to War Queen Pia Marani? Yes, I assume that I am speaking to Ambassador Mickey Yamada. Indeed. Have you come to taunt me? Not at all. Yamada's alien expression was hard to read but she seemed a little tense. I'm offering you terms of surrender. Terms denied. Really, after all this time, you think you can persuade us to be meekly herded to our extermination? We'll fight to the last. What if we weren't planning to exterminate you? Humans have caused genocides and extinctions in our past, and we've decided to never let it happen again. And as for the rest of the League, well, they're all a peaceful civilization's None of us want to wipe you out. We just want you to stop wiping us out. Marani barked along, hoping that it wouldn't come across as nervous as it was. Yamada sighed. War Queen, I have absolutely no reason to believe that you are foolish or stupid. You are evidently held in a very high regard by your people, and I am sure that you must have earned that regard. I know that generations of xenophobic beliefs are hard to shed. Human history has taught me that much. Please think about this rationally. We have insisted on disabling, not destroying your ship at every turn. We sent you back to the crew of the insert name here, and they told you how we treated them. And more importantly, I represent a body of twelve sapient species that have been cooperating with each other for centuries. Do you not find the possibility that I'm being truthful to be even slightly plausible? The flicker of doubt arose once more in Morani's chest. What if? What if? Just out of curiosity, what would those terms of surrender be exactly? Hope glimmered in Yamada's eyes. Firstly, demilitarization. Secondly, you and your counsel would be tried for crimes against life. You'd be given a fair trial, of course but I have to admit that I can't see it ending well for you. Thirdly, we have identified an uninhabited planet that appears to be suitable to your physiology. The craft would be towed into its orbit as a new moon, and you would be given the tools to colonize it. Your species would be given a fresh start. If, in generations to come, you reach the stars once more and have become peaceful, you will be welcomed to the League. Samarani's own death was assured and the rest of his species would have a pretty hard time of it for quite a while. And if I say no, we'll still do all of those things, but we'll have to invade and take control of the craft, which will undoubtedly involve quite a bit of bloodshed. Bloodshed, yes, of course it will. 
There's not a person aboard this craft, save maybe those traitors who wouldn't fight to the end to protect our people. And I suspected if I surrender, I will be murdered and my successor will continue this war. Even if you can worm your way into the heads of one or two people, you can't convince us all. I refuse to be remembered as a coward. Yamada was taken aback by this. I, uh, I assume that this negotiation is over then. We will go into history with honor, Mickey Yamada. I only hope that when your time comes, you find it in yourself to do the same. Cut the feed. End of chapter. Tales from Outer Space 939. The smaller the scorpion, the more potent the venom. Written by Dathuan. Ram and Arn watched as the small, almost speechless blob lanked up to the bar, which was level with its chest. It was nearly 1.9 meters tall. Proportionately, its limbs were quite thin as well, the thickest parts of its limbs being barely a third the diameter of its chest. Arn was famous in these parts, and every time a newbie walked into his bar, he felt it was his duty to provide an exhibition of the other regulars. He was known throughout the quadrant as the toughest barroom brawler for a thousand light years in every direction. And he enjoyed the benefits of that title. It had afforded him quite the lifestyle. Having such an individual take up residence in your bar meant fewer fights broke out, lest they attract the attention of the seasoned brawler. He drank for free and even got paid to patronize particular bars. This bar was especially attractive to those types so a famous brawler was more important than in most others. Situated in the expanse between two galactic arms, the Manifold was the only bar on the refueling station for 50 light years, and a convenient rest stop right in the middle of the 100 light year trade route. Granted, this particular trade route wasn't nearly as popular as others, but it was considered faster than the other 600 light year long way around. But the vast emptiness generally was hard to navigate, and, for quite a few species, mentally disturbing. This also made it prime target for piracy. As a result, the merchants who frequented these routes could only afford, or convince, the truly desperate to man the transports. It's hard to be desperate in the intergalactic society. You have to be a special kind of jerk to be desperate enough to need to work in the expanse trade route. This particular kind of jerk in question was the violent kind. People steal because they're lacking in life. Most societies figure out by the time that they become interstellar that most sapiens would rather work than steal. But violence, that proclivity, being more primal. That's what Arn and Ram were. Primal. Primates, in fact. Arn eyeballed the human as it ordered a drink and elbowed Ram. You ever see a human around here? Ram sipped his drink. Nope. Arn grunt. Always heard of they were crazy. But you know what they say. Smaller the monkey, the louder they howl. Ram just shrugged. Why don't you go and find out? Arn chuckled and rolled out of his chair, standing to his full 2.5 meters and slipping on his knuckle boots. His arms were long, even for a primate, being nearly two meters in length on their own, and nearly as thick as a human. As he meandered over, he grabbed onto the bar with one hand and lifted himself onto the stool next to the human. 
removing his knuckle boots and hanging them on the hook under the bar. Hey, you're a human, huh? Aunt said, tapping on the bar, indicating that he wanted a fresh glass of his usual. The human seemed a bit startled that someone was talking to him. Huh? Um, oh yeah. Never seen a human way out here. Uh, what brings you around? Oh, just wanted to see the galaxy. Can't really do that running freight for human companies. And the only ones willing to employ my kind are in these kinds of places, I guess. Aunt chuckled, a low, quiet sort of ooh-oh sound. Well, well, only truly desperate end up way out here. Meh, that's kind of nice, he shrugged. Then did a standing jump up and over the stool, landing squarely on its seat. The gravity is a bit of an issue, though. Arn was confused for a second, but shook it off. Too high! Nah, way too low. 2.5M, that's like a quarter of what is back on Earth. For the first time, Arn actually looked at the human, really examined him. The standard jumpsuit worn by hairless species was very revealing, and in his years as a brawler, he learned to size up his opponents. Not only was his musculature clearly visible through the material, but even his vasculature in some places. The human's knuckles were almost calloused as his own. The skin on his forearms was thick, scarred, and taut clearly revealing every artery and muscle as he reached up for his glass. This is gonna be interesting, Han thought to himself. Given that you're new out here, I take it you don't really know much about galactic etiquette in these kinds of establishments. Oh, I've heard stories, but for the most part, yeah, not really sure. The biggest guys challenge the newcomers, right? The human smiled and rubbed the short, bristly hair on the top of his head. Arn dropped his jovial tone and adopted a serious one. That is the way we do things out here. You must understand, we have to discourage unruly behavior. I'm guessing that area over there isn't a dance floor then. The human looked over to the shallow pit in the center of the large room. Arn chuckled at the attempt to derail the inevitable. I understand you've probably heard of me as well. Unfortunately, there is no escape in this. Especially since you're the first human we've had out here in this sector. My professional reputation is on the line. I have to make an example of you for other humans to understand how to behave. The human just sighed and slid out of his stool. All right, let's just make this quick. On followed suit after slipping on his knuckle boots, slowly making his way over to the informal ring with an exaggerated swagger. This drew people's attention. It had been a while since they'd seen a fight, given that Arn's reputation kept the rabble in check. Even though he hadn't fought in a while, he still kept in good shape, training daily. The human looked well-trained as well. He was almost excited, but knew how things would turn out, especially given the human's small stature. As he stepped into the ring, the human was stretching out his shoulders and legs. Good idea, thought Arn. I'd had quite a few drinks. It'll be good to get the blood pumping. He tossed the knuckle boots onto the side of the ring and began stretching. After a few rotations of his shoulders and nice stretching of his fingers and forearms, Arn moved to the center of the ring. The human followed suit. So, uh, is there a bell or signal or something? Arn was the signal. He reached forward with one of his massive, powerful hands and gripped the human's shoulder 
looking to lift him up and slam him down to establish dominance right away. But he didn't, or rather, couldn't. The human was dense. He must have weighed just as much, maybe even more, than Arn. After failing to lift the human, he went to use two arms, but didn't have the chance. Before he could even lift his knuckles from the ground, a hand shot up and wrapped a third of the way around his arm wrist and squeezed hard. A cracking sound indicated that the bone had snapped. The human's grip was like a pneumatic vice. Even as the sound of his breaking forearm was still reverberating in the silent room, the human twisted around and flung the 2.5-meter-tall gorilla man up and over his shoulder, slamming him into the ground, following it up with a single lightning-fast punch to the chin. The next thing R knew, he was lying on the couch in the VIP lounge with Ram and the human standing over him, conversing about something Arn couldn't quite make out. He let out a groan. Oh crap, are you okay, man? The human stepped over to him. Ram tried in vain to hold the human back, simply grabbing onto his upper arm and getting dragged forward. It's alright, I was a corpsman in the na- a medical specialist in the human military. I know medicine. Ram just shrugged and gestured to Arn. The human held up a finger. Follow my finger with your eyes. Arn followed the instruction, but had to ask, How? How? How are you so heavy? How do you knock me out in one blow? How are you this strong, even though you're so small? The human continued to work as Arn spoke, checking the back of his head, examining the wrist, and so on. Oh, uh, well, I guess that's more to do with my homeworld. Back on my planet, gravity is about 9.8 M. I guess we just have to, uh... Hey, Ram, uh, do you guys have a first aid kit around here? It, uh, we have to be like that just to withstand the gravity. Plus, um, we're kind of apex, apex predators. Apex, apex predators, Han said hoarsely, not sure he understood. Uh, yeah, we hunt other apex predators, or we used to. They're mostly extinct now, you know, from the hunting. Han's eyes began to water. At times, Arn had thought of himself as an apex predator, the top of the galactic food chain. And there was an entire species of sentience that evolved to hunt apex predators. He hadn't felt fear in a long, long time. He was supremely confident in his strength, durability, and combat prowess. Having that confidence shattered by such a small being so publicly was overwhelming. It welled up in his chest, flooded his throat, and overflowed from his eyes, tears trickling down his face. He couldn't speak, but was mouthing words. Oh, hey, hey, you're all right. I'll get you patched up in a... Thanks, Ram, he said as Ram passed him the first aid kit, which seemed comically oversized in the human's desperately small hands. In no time, all right? Ah could only stare in awe as the monster administered expert, albeit a little fast and sloppy, medical care. Alrighty then, you'll be okay, on Just a few bumps and minor fracture. Sorry about that, by the way. There were four Canadian before. You're all patched up and good to go. Arn couldn't even speak. His face twisted in terror. His throat too dry to produce sound. He just held his palms up to the human, staring down at the floor. His entire career flashed through his mind. He had done this to so many other beings, he had never imagined that it could happen to him, let alone by someone that appeared so weak at first glance. When he looked up, the human seemed worried. 
Is he going to be all right? I'm pretty sure I took care of everything. Ram just shrugged. Never lost a fight before. Oh, shit. It's all right. Sorry. Hey, man, let me buy you a drink. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.